So. Okay, we're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, for those of you who weren't on this morning, I'm Henry Jenkins, the, the co-director of the Comparative Media Studies Program and one of the two sponsoring organizations for today's conference, along with the Convergence Culture Consortium. Uh, today, this panel is on fan labor, and I, th I thought I would begin to illustrate the concept of fan labor by acknowledging uh, an error in the program, which actually emerges from the challenges of reconciling what I know as an academic and scholar of the industry and what I know as a fan. So the, many of you know Tim O'Reilly wrote a definitive essay, What is Web 2.0, which coined the term architecture participation. However, in the program, I refer to Kevin O'Reilly. And unless you're of a certain generation of fan, you probably do not remember that Kevin O'Reilly was a lieutenant aboard the classic Enterprise. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who, who, had, who appeared in the episode The Naked Time, uh, which was part of the fan canon of the, the original generation of Star Trek fans, and spun off to being much more elaborated in what we call fanon, wow. uh, so that he was a central player in Star, Star Trek fan fiction I think you're about for to about a decade. Grognard here. So, uh, I believe uh, he was at least very good. <laughs> yes, he was in several episodes, and the actor who played him was a regular at the science fiction conventions that grew out of Star Trek's classic airing. So for some strange reason, when I wrote this up, uh, Tim O'Reilly's name migrated into Kevin O'Reilly, just moving us from canon to fanon uh, in terms of bodies of knowledge we rely on in our, in our work. So having corrected the mistake now and acknowledged that I am a total fan and geek, we can move into the uh, fan labor discussion uh, which hopefully will take up some of the controversies that have started to emerge around Web 2.0. And I said this morning that if last year was the year that Web 2.0 first really got reached the general public through magazines like Time, Newsweek, uh, Business Week, and so forth, this is the year where some of the this implicit logic, the hidden, the social contract of Web 2.0, has started to unravel. And there have been a series of conflicts this year around the relation of users or fans or gamers or bloggers to the Web 2.0 companies that have emerged to support them. And so what we thought today would be we'd begin to sort of talk through bringing together some corporate people, some fans, some people who research uh, online communities to think about uh, the changes that are taking place and to see if we can understand more clearly some of the conflicts that might emerge between the logic of participatory culture and the logic of commodity culture, which shapes many of the Web 2.0 companies. So that said, I thought we'd just have people introduce themselves and describe what, what issues this past year have sparked the most interest to you as you've thought about this emerging space of user-generated content. What's excited you about it, or what, you, what do you think are some of the concerns on the horizon as we think about user-generated content over the last year? All right, and Rafe, would you get us started? Sure. So. Yes. So uh, I'm Raf Coster, and I just dropped the microphone. I'm a klutz. I, uh, I'm a video game designer, board game designer as well, but mostly video games, mostly virtual worlds. Um, I did uh, Ultima Online, Star Wars Galaxies, which had a, a relatively famous fan 
uh, controversy, I guess. Um, and I'm now doing a thing which is, uh, it's actually end user built virtual worlds, pretty much diving headlong into um, end users, fans, whatever, making their own content. And uh, I, this, this last year has been really interesting to watch, I think on, on a lot of levels. I think the, uh, all of the live journal controversies, the take up and the non-take up amongst of fandom of certain TV shows that intended to get taken up more broadly and didn't succeed. Uh, the kind of ongoing wrestling over the music industry and what ways uh, various companies co-opt or not, <laughs> mostly unsuccessfully, the, uh, the user creation, all of the new sites springing up now and starting to do well, building uh, bands and things like that, the thriving area with fan labor actually that a lot of people don't pay a lot of attention to, which is 3D modeling. Um, huge, huge fan communities around that stuff. Um, it's, it definitely has been a big year of upheaval and also a year I think where Web 2.0 consumers figured out that quite a lot of Web 2.0 is built on jipping people out of the stuff they made. Um, and, and, you know, get, getting a bit of, of backlash there. So, you know, I'm not going to pretend to have any answers to it. I'm not going to start out with any positions or anything like that. I think that basically there's a really complicated kind of social contract that goes on among a whole bunch of different kind of participants, right? And really the line between a fan creator and a professional creator has as somebody who, you know, does it for a living, it, it's, a lot of it is actually just luck, not talent. It's who happened to be in the right place at the right time in order to get paid for it. And it's actually that money bit and uh, that, that sense of, well, I deserve something back for what I've done that causes most of the problems because historically, really in almost every artistic field, artists starved to death until about 1890. So, uh, in some ways, the whole idea of creative content being something that earns money for ordinary people is uh, kind of historically bizarre. Um, in fact, creative content earning money even for professional people is historically bizarre until very, very recently. And it might just be that much of our perception of what fan culture and mashup and co-option of allegedly professional content and all the rest is, uh, is really just because we're looking at it through these very particular 20th century lens that really doesn't accord with any of the rest of history in terms of how we've dealt with cultural product. Because for most of history, cultural product was a gift to the commonwealth. So I think uh, it's very much kind of a temporarily based discussion and most of what we say will probably be irrelevant in five years. So Maybe in five minutes. <laughs> Possibly five minutes. Well, maybe five days. So anyway, I'm Elizabeth Osder and um, I currently uh, do a lot of consulting and also work for a company called BuzzNet, which is a vertically focused social network that works in uh, music and pop, has communities in music and pop culture. And I think over the last year, um, there are a lot of things that have come to mind. Um, just 
to say my particular focus has been one in industry. So I come from the professional world. I come from media companies. Um, I left Yahoo last April where I worked on a number of social projects, including You Witness News, which was sort of the sort of citizen journalism project. And that was after 15 years in um, really the news and information space, working verticals from uh, news. I worked for the New York Times and running communities in all of them, news, finance, sports, um, travel. And so in Web 1.0, I always toiled in community. And now in Web 2.0, I'm diving in, in further. And I think what's, you know, f from my perspective, um, there's certain things. I'm just trying to learn about users. And one of the reasons I'm doing the work I'm doing at BuzzNet is I want a very close relationship with a group of users to understand what they do, why they do it, and what they get out of it, and how I can give them things that they want. Because essentially, through all these jobs, I've been a product developer, trying to create experiences and platforms to engage consumers. If I engage consumers in doing something, then I work for media companies, and that's a good business. But the question that out outlies for us all now is, is that we actually, I'm not naive to the fact that these folks are creating value. And I want them to create value, and I want to find ways to incent their creation, and I want to find ways to reward them for that creation. And so in the middle of the right muddle right now, I think across my consulting and the work that I'm doing is I'm looking at various uh, systems to basically incent and reward people and understand users and their motivations. So we talk a lot in this panel about fans and super fans and fandom and sci-fi and those communities. And you know, that's not really my shtick. I'm trying to find people with other motivations that are maybe down the chain, maybe someplace between these super expert users who are going to give so passionately and somebody who's just a plain consumer, I'm, uh, just a consumer of information. I want to re reward people for consumption because I think it's great that they, they read content. And if we want to build an economy, they have to actually con ingest some of the stuff that's made. And if they ingest a lot of it and people make more of it, then we actually have an ecosystem that actually can make money and can engage people. And actually, we can pay people back. So the topics that I'm most, uh, I, I think most about is, is all the different states of users, from super user down to consumer, all those points in between of different points of passion, that's sort of the intersection of somebody's interests and somebody's time and what they're willing to contribute, whether it's the value of a simple rating or it's writing a piece of fanfic. But there's a lot of other levels of engagement now that are open to people with less time, less passion, less expertise. And we want lots of people contributing because that's really going to scale this phenomenon that we've really seen emerge in the fanfic community. So it's really, um, what is that person's level of engagement? What is their interest? And how can I make it more engaging for them? How can I reward them for their good contributions? And how can I incent them to do more things? And how can I listen to what they say and give them the tools that they want? And so in my products right now, I talk to folks every day. I hear that they like to do this and I like to do that so they can do this or that. And so we build this or that so they can get there. And uh, that's just sort of the practical reality. If I build this and that that they want, they have a site that they want to spend time on, and that's actually good for a media company. So, um, so for me, it's the vertical topics, the different levels of engagement on topics that people have in that, and rewards and incentives. And um, there's so many things I could go on, but it's, uh, and there, there are great models out there and great, lots of things to learn. But I do, do think the media companies that I grew up on are, are forever gone and that we're in the, the muck and mire now fitting out, figuring out a new system where everybody needs to get something. <coughs> okay, um, is my mic on? Yes, okay. <laughs> uh, my name is Katherine Tosenberger and I have a master's in folklore from Ohio State University and a PhD in children's lit and folklore from the University of Florida. And I wrote my dissertation on Harry Potter online fan fiction. I'm really interested in 
the way Harry Potter fan fiction, uh, fandom in general, has changed so much, well, fandom in general has changed so much with the introduction of the internet and how Harry Potter is at a hand in that. Uh, you know, the, I, I forget which generation of fandom scholars are right now, we're in the third generation, maybe. But, uh, you know, when, when, uh, when Henry and Camille, Camille Bacon Smith and uh, Constance Penley were first writing their major works, then a lot of the people they were writing about were adult women writing fan fiction. Now the stereotype of the fan, there's always been an element of adolescence to it. The stereotype of the fan, it's, you know, the stereotypical images of the fan from the 20th century are teenage girls who can't express their sexuality in any way other than screaming for the Beatles or the Backstreet Boys, um, or the 40-year-old virgin living in his parents' basement who, uh, you know, collects Star Trek memorabilia or whatever. These are the, these are, are stereotypical images of fandom, and it's adolescence, whether actual or inappropriately, inappropriately retained. And then when the internet and Harry Potter fandom grew up together, essentially, the uh, Harry Potter fandom hit big at around the same time that the internet went really mainstream. So now all of a sudden, you've got this scholarship that's about adult Star Trek fans, adult sci-fi, adult media fans, and really kind of rescued fandom from this adolescent stigma. Then Harry Potter comes along and the internet goes mainstream. Now you've got a very big, very visible influx of teenage fans coming into this realm who want to participate on the same level as the adults do. And now their material can be seen beforehand if a teenage fan, you know, because fandom, participatory fandom before the internet was pretty much limited to adults. You had to know where to go. You had to know who to talk to. You had to find the convention. You had to, uh, you had to pay for the fan fiction. You had to buy the zines. You had to know who to ask for these for the zines. So, if you wanted the fanfic, if you wanted to write the fanfic, you wanted to circulate it, you had to know the people who knew the people, and that meant adults. And so, Harry Potter fandom is really interesting in that regard. You have a very visible population of younger fans, in uh, in concert with older fans as well. And the internet has made all of this very visible. Uh, so that's one area that I'm really interested in. Another is. Because fandom as, as a whole is becoming so visible because of the internet, uh, you can't really talk about it as this little weird hidden community. Oh my gosh, people are writing strange Star Trek stories, this bizarre little community. Well, now they're posted on the internet for the world to see. And the culture of fandom is changing to reflect that. And the discussions that go on in fandom, like what is the appropriate relationship between fans and the powers that be? Uh, what is the correct way to respond to that? And because now all the dirtiest fanfic can now be seen by anybody who knows how to use Google, um, it's, uh, it, it's not as hidden anymore. And the way fans have negotiated this. Um, I'm also interested in the relationship, uh, well, with the writer's strike coming up. Well, it's happening. It, it's happening. Yes, right now the writers' strike uh, in relation to fans. There's been there's been a lot of concern, and I think we're going to talk about it this in this panel. Uh, earlier this year, there was a uh, an attempt by a company calling itself FanLib to essentially capitalize on fan labor and not pay for it. And this is in fan fiction, which is really interesting. Um, and we'll talk later about that. But uh, essentially, they were trying to capitalize on fanfic writers' fiction. And they went about it in the most ham-fisted, idiotic way and basically managed to irritate the entire Vanish community. And uh, I'm really interested in that, uh, especially with the writer's strike going on. It, it seems to have come at a very opportune time. Uh, and there were some, no some noises being made uh, 
early on about, well, hey, the writer's strike is, you know, they might strike in November. This is in May. They might strike in November. What if FanLib is looking for scabs, essentially? So that's something I'm interested in. And just to bring it back to uh, something Raf was, ta was talking about, uh, history, I'm really interested, uh, my primary uh, work has been with fan fiction, obviously. And I'm really interested in fan fiction uh, as it relates to larger artistic issues. Uh, the process, the artistic, uh, the artistic process of using other people's characters is really old. It's very, very old. And I'm really interested in how, uh, fan, uh, how what fans do is really tapping into some very old artistic models. Uh, and I think the, sole di the major difference between fans posting their stories online and, say, somebody publishing a book, uh, you know, those sequels to Jane Austen novels that you've probably seen, uh, the difference is that uh, fans prefer to circulate their stories unofficially, whether because they're talking about in copyright texts, whether because they're talking about texts that are in copyright and they can't publish, or because, uh, they're or because they just want to. Fandom offers a lot of freedom in a way that once you start bringing commercial publishing, uh, involvement with media companies, once you start having to tailor it so that you can get paid, I think it kind of cuts fandom off at the knees because one of the great powers of fandom is the freedom. It's complete anarchy. You can write whatever you want, and nobody's going to stop you. Uh, as long as you don't try to make any money off of it, you're fine. And so that's, uh, and I'm really interested in how that has developed, the idea of compensating writers for their work, uh, the way of intellectual property, how it's developed pretty much from the 18th century onward. So, yeah. Hey, I'm uh, Jordan Greenhall. I'm here, I think, primarily because I am actually a fan of pretty much anything you could throw your uh, throw a stick at, comic books, science fiction, games, <coughs> Harry Potter, um, not so much the... Uh, um, the Jane Austen, but yeah, you know, <laughs> sure to get that. Um, oh, and, but about ten years ago, I got into the, uh, the the media, the digital media business. I was involved in starting up a company in the in the MP3 movement, um, and I'm very passionate about music. And was involved in starting up a company called MP3.com. Uh, and then after that was done, started another company called uh, DivX, which was essentially doing essentially the same thing in, in video. And I'm now uh, uh, starting another company called Stage Six, uh, which is actually operating. Um, which is focused on uh, the, the, so the next generation of what happens when you uh, enable all the things around uh, open communities and open distribution, open publishing, and open marketing uh, for uh, experiences, media experiences. I'll, I'll use that phrase instead of information, you know, content that is designed to be the sort of thing that conveys an experience from one person to another. We, you know, we generally see them as entertainment and news and things like that. Um, the, I, I said there's about five things that I find to be, well, there's an enormous number of things that I find to be very interesting, but five that I think I've seen notable movement in the past year. Uh, and forgive me, because I have spent the past 10 years rubbing the media industry the wrong way. So I spent a lot of time focusing on just that piece of it. Uh, one is, is, the, is the movement, and this is at a sort of a rhetorical level, but also at a legal level, of the, the primary people who, who are in, involved in the notion of what the major media industry is about in their mindset of what is, is the, the way these things are going and the way that they ought to go. So, for example, I spend time talking to you know, people who are you know, congressmen involved in, in setting the intellectual property laws and folks, you know, lawyers and, and, and big wigs in the major, major media companies. And 10 years ago, when I was sitting in front of them telling them that it was inevitable that major uh, artists in the music industry would be releasing their content directly to their fans and involving you not at all. They <laughs> said that I was completely insane. And then now, of course, that that has in fact come to pass, uh, I'm finding not only are they recognizing that the, the economic fundamentals are changing, but also what I find to be, frankly, very uh, makes me very enthusiastic is they're changing the nature of the rhetoric they use. You know, this is a very uh, 
rhetorical industry that, that creates all kinds of interesting artifice around what morally ought to be the case, and their moral arguments are changing in, I think, a way that is, is largely positive. Um, the second thing that I think is very interesting, obviously, is, in fact, that the, 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 these economic substructures are beginning to move. Radiohead was something that was, was predicted a long time ago, but it's significant, and uh, I personally would have done it slightly differently than the way that they did it, but nonetheless, it, it makes a major, major uh, uh, milestone, and we can start dating things from that, just the same way that we dated things from iTunes. Um, the third thing that I'm interested in is remix culture, uh, particularly remix culture that's combining uh, multimedia, so you know, remixing audio and video together in, in a variety of ways. I really think that this is a, an entirely new medium, which is, uh, contains an enormous amount of potential energy around creative expression that we've never really uh, been able to, to experience before, potentially orders of magnitude above anything that we've been able to experience through traditional linear, you know, created uh, video. Um, and some of the experiments that are going on right now are uh, just absolutely mind-blowing. And by the way, unfortunately or possibly fortunately require a, a level of experience and connection with existing you know, culture um, that could not have existed before we were in a mass media environment, right? So this is sort of recursive effect that, that drives uh, information technology in general. Uh, and the last thing is, I mean, I spent a lot of time thinking about how do we take this mire that we're clearly in and you know, what's the right way for it to go? And that's a two-dimensional problem, right? One is, what are our degrees of freedom to influence it at all? Are we simply a, uh, you know, a, a boat uh, adrift on the ocean, simply have to <coughs> stay above water until it reaches its final destination? Or can we sort of steer this thing in some direction? And then the second is, the degree to which we can steer it, where ought we to steer it? And what is the, you know, the kind of you know, post-information society that we actually want to collectively build? And uh, I think that, frankly, I was very frustrated uh, 10, 15 years ago by the level of discourse about that. I think that things are starting to get more uh, interesting, maybe more meaty, that the conversations are more intelligent and uh, more practical, and that excites me as well. Cool. Uh, hi, I'm, my name is Mark Deze. I'm Dutch, and uh, that's probably the reason why I'm here. <laughs> no, you're from India. <laughs> yeah, right. And I'm also from Indiana, so there you go. That's that's a that's a convergence. Um, um, I, um, I, 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 Henry, you, I was thinking about you know my relationship with fandom, and I and at first thought I, I don't have any, but then I realized I I started out as a journalist, and I remember now very distinctly that I did so because I was a fan of heavy metal, and I wanted to meet the bands, <laughs> and and and. Um, um, that's it. So I got my first internship in my second year in, in journalism school. And uh, the first day I got in, they said, well, you can do like, you know, copy editing at the city desk. And uh, sure. I, and so I sat down and then waited till everybody left for lunch. And then I went to the, the newspaper that I was working for at that time had one journalist uh, covering music. Uh, that was sort of, and, and it was, nobody really thought that was very necessary. But of course, the kids didn't read the newspaper anymore. This is in the 80s. And so let's put pop music on, the, like today they're covering video games, not because anybody cares, but that's what the kids do. Um, so in the 80s, there was pop music. And so I went to this guy and I said, no, I'm, I'm, I, I want to interview bands. Can you please send me to uh, like a press conference or whatever? I had no idea how these things worked. And he said, sure, what, do you, what music do you like? I said, like metal. I said, well, okay. So anyways, the next day, um, um, he came to my desk and said, okay, uh, here's a train ticket. You go to Amsterdam. You're going to interview Tony Iommi. 
Yes? Lord of Darkness? No? <laughs> the guitar player of Black Sabbath. Now, of course, the very first album that I ever got from my mom was Black Sabbath Greatest Hits when I was 14. <laughs> so I was just like, sign my album, and I went home. <laughs> anyway, so that was my professional identity as a journalist. Uh, uh, and uh, the reason why I'm telling you this story, partly because I'm... I just fun to tell a story, but also because it, it, it says something about the work I'm doing now, which is I, I interview people in the media and ask them, so what's it like to do what you do? That's basically what I do. Um, and I write books about them. One of them you can get in the lobby. It's next to Henry's book. Um, anyways, um, uh, and I'm a fan of Henry's work, so I guess that's, that's, that's a fan relationship too. But um, And one of the things that you probably recognize, because most of you actually work in the media, most people actually work in the media, the creative kind of people, advertising creatives, journalists, you know, game developers, primarily because they're fans. Uh, I mean, that's their motivation. Their motivation tends not to be, generally speaking, you know, b benefits, you know, good stuff that helps them pay. Them. Of course, that's important. But what ultimately motivates them, the way they talk about their work, what the decisions they make on a day-to-day -day basis means to them, is like, it's, it's what you described about fans. They want to be free to do what they want to do. They want to, uh, um, you know, they have all these stories to tell. They want to change the world in all the different ways. And it doesn't really matter whether you talk to an advertising creative at Wyden and Kennedy in Portland about the new Nike campaign or about an investigative reporter at the New York Times. They talk about it in using the same discourse. And there's real power in that discourse. And, uh, um, but, and that brings me to your question, Henry. So what have you seen happening in the context of Web 2.0? One of the things that I've seen happening is that, again, generally speaking, these media professionals, sort of prof professional fans, don't really like the idea of collaborating with audiences. Because it's generally framed as, as an infringement on their creative freedom. Like, I mean, you look into a newsroom and you see who's responsible for uh, moderating the discussion forums. It's either a, a tech guy or an intern or somebody who's green and they just want to, you know, uh, everybody laughs behind his or her back. So it has the lowest position on the occupational hierarchy. That tells you something about the status of, of, of convergence culture and professional context, generally speaking. Um, uh, but... Let's say it, and that's beginning to change, and I totally acknowledge that. Within these media organizations, that discourse is beginning to change. You see that some types of convergence culture actually work, give you better deliverables or assets, if you will, whether that's a new story or a scenario or a level for a game or whatever. But now that all these companies have beginning to adopt the Web 2.0 convergence culture and so on for narrative, for discourse in their, into their strategies, that to some extent has led in certain organizations to a, basically a mechanism that has enabled companies to cut labor. Uh, there's quite a few stories, especially in the news industry, which of course is economically struggling the hardest of all the other industries, um, 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 of journalists being let go and three months later the company uh, uh, enthusiastically announcing that they were going citizen journalism, hyper-local, and so on <laughs> and so forth. I'm thinking about Media General, for example, in the Tampa Bay area, or the Santa Rosa local television station, I forgot the name, or the, what's the product, U, U News TV, by three stations in the Northwest that, of course, in the last three years fired about 80% of the editorial staff and now announced that they were starting U News TV where people can upload their own news. Awesome, but of course, first the editors and reporters were let go. 
So, so, so that, that does validate some of the professional skepticism uh, towards uh, convergence culture in news organizations or in media organizations in general. I know like in certain game companies that have special divisions that monitor and engage in user discussion forums. And that's kind of seen as sort of the step upwards into the real work as a game developer. Again, that occupational hierarchy thing. Um, so now I'm excited about convergence culture and about Web 2.0. I think there's a tremendous creative potential. But just as we sometimes might fault the industry for misappropriating it or talking about it in terms that, that relate to control, harnessing the value of the user interface, whatever, um, we can also value the construction of professional identities in media work. Uh, um, I mean, a journalism school doesn't train its journalists to, uh, to, to, to stimulate citizen journalism. That may seem obvious, but it's actually really dumb because that's what they're all going to be confronted with when they graduate. And, and, and so, so that's where I'm interested in. So um, 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 the work in the book was interviews with media professionals in a bunch of different countries, including the US, and in a bunch of different professions, journalism, video games, advertising. Um, and I'm following it up now with a, a bunch of case studies where I go to specific companies, independent, large, small, I don't care what country, what industry, that are implementing sort of innovative, creative change pro uh, projects within their companies or parts of their companies that involve an appreciation of what users are doing as well with their content and sort of monitor that implementation process and then trying to explain why it always goes wrong because it generally goes wrong. And we'll talk about that later on. All right. Very good. Well, I want, we've already started down this path, but I wanted to take a moment at the beginning to sort of think about what are the implicit social agreements that shape Web 2.0. And as a case in point, we set up uh, the jellyfish system and solicited user-generated content uh, from the population out there. The population, in turn, has an expectation of us that we incorporate those questions into the presentation. Right? We set up a community this morning, and already if you look at our board, it's a community in rebellion. Uh, <laughs> right? We have 10 people so far have voted for the observation that we should incorporate more of the users questions into the session, and it's going up as I speak, I think. Uh, and, and so, yes, I definitely want to be doing that and definitely think that that's part of what we hope to have happen in the session. It's about balancing professionally generated content, i.e. the questions I spent the speakers in advance, and user-generated content, i.e. those out here, to come up with a good conversation. And that's what we're trying to do. So that might illustrate one set of expectations we have about the social web, Web 2.0. I wonder if the panelists have some others that you'd like to, like to speak to about what do you think producers legitimately expect of users in a social web kind of model and what do consumers legitimately expect from the media companies they're interacting with in that space? I've got uh, some thoughts on that. Should I talk? Talk. Uh, I, I can't tell what I should be looking at. Everybody's looking above my head and to the right. Um, if you want us to sit out there and look in, we can just talk to the screen. That's okay. What I'll, what I'll do is I'll sort of work, work backwards from the, from the audience. And, and the way I would do it is, is the first thing I'd do is I'd, I'd take the term brand and I'd redefine it from a way that I think we, I even heard being, being used in the previous panel. And I'd take the term brand, the term culture, and the term community and say that they essentially uh, relate to the same thing. 
And what I would say then is that the audience uh, or the, the human beings who participate in a particular culture around a, a form of media expect things like authenticity and sincerity out of the people who are supplying the canonical forms of media into that particular community. Um, so that when you feel that someone in the, in the, in the, in the role of putting um, content into the community is engaging in something that is artificial or is fundamentally not in alignment with the, 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 cultural, the culture of the community itself, then you get a sense of alienation, a sense of distance. And uh, I think that's actually a, sort of a fundamental element of the social contract. And you can certainly see that happening in, in pr pretty much any environment that you see. Um, I think also one of the things is sort of an unconscious expectation now that is happening among the generation that's grown up in this environment is an expectation to be able to participate, period. Right? And I think that expectation increases and reinforces itself over time. But those are two very different things. There's actually a moral obligation on the part of the individuals who are creating the content to be authentic participants in the community, just as much as there is a moral obligation of those participants to enable the community itself to participate authentically. And I think that the you know, a reaction against, for example, the way that uh, Lucasfilm uh, handled the Star Trek or the Star Wars franchise um, may be considered a, a sense of a, a failure on their part to actually authentically and sincerely <coughs> extend that uh, that content in a sense that the community itself felt was legitimate. That's all. Um, I also think too that uh, you know when we're talking about the social contract between the producers and the audience, that I think you have to remember that uh, there's a lot of uh, different that the audience is not some monolithic mass. You know there are people uh, as we've been mentioning there are people who uh, just are casual viewers. There I think Elizabeth's your term was super fans all the way to just simple consumers, and even among those fans who are most participatory, those fans who are writing the fan fiction, creating the fan vids, the ones that uh, we talk about, uh, that scholars tend to focus especially on, uh, because they're the ones who are producing material that you can see and that you can study, uh, there's still a lot of different groups within that. There are some people who just do not want producers coming anywhere who are not going to come up to the producer and say, hey, I really like heroes. I think that you should uh, show Hero and Ando's mad, passionate love affair on the screen. Uh, you know, that, a group of fans who want that sort of thing um, <laughs> are not necessarily going to come up to Jesse Alexander, even though I just spoke it, you know, publicly like that, and demand this of him. You know, <laughs> and how much, and I think part of that too is a cult, it's a that there are very specific cultures within even those groups of participatory fans, they want different things. And not everybody wants to give feedback to the producers, tell them, this is what I think you should be doing, this is what I think you should be doing. Other people, you know, there are some people who are going, no, I just want, you just keep doing what you're doing. Fandom is our space. Mm -hmm. Canon is your space. You do whatever you want, we'll respond to it however we want, and you stay out. Some people want more interaction, but a lot of fans do not, especially those fans who are not used to getting what they want from television uh, or whatever uh, text they're looking at. I'm thinking specifically of Slash fans. Uh, Slash is homoerotic fan fiction. And they're pretty much used to not having producers or you know, authors or whatever cater to what they want. And they're very used to just making do on their own. And so this is going to be a group of people who is not going to go up, who are not going to go up to... Uh, television producers and say, this is what I want, because they know perfectly well that the producers go like, no, we can't do that. It'd be too controversial, be too this, be too that. So I think when you're talking about you know, what the social contract is, which, you, which uh, members of the audience you're talking about, 
Are you talking about that most desirable 18 to 49 male demographic? Are you talking about uh, you know, teenagers? Are you talking about specifically your hardcore group of participatory fans? Well, which participatory fans do you want? Do you want the people writing nice little you know, gen fic about Claire discovering her powers on heroes? Or do you want the people writing uh, Hero Ando Slash? Do you want them too, or just that one group? So I think you have to consider all of those when you're talking about a social contract. I think um, some, of, some of the things that come to mind for me are in sort of the, um, being that I come from, grew up in sort of the journalism and big media spaces. Uh, you know, in a lot of ways, when I think about this question, I try to break it down into, you know, what is it that the, uh, the old producer had that, that the audience didn't have? They had access to things whether that be access to people they wanted to report on or ban access to bans or access to information. That's what's changed in the world first off is access to information. So that's changed uh, how their relationship to their audience works. But the other thing that's true in a credible news brand or media brand was based on being credible, bringing for taking, taking serious your access to that information and that celebrity or politician or whoever it was, and bringing forth important questions that, that the audience want answered, representing the voice of the, the audience, answering the question that the, they'd be interested in. And um, that's the way the old sort of supply train work, worked. And editors had a good gut for what people wanted to read. And they took their access, and they, they, they figured they were answering the right questions. So what's happened now is that you, the, the new part of the equation is, is access to the questions of the audience and having them, if you still want to have traditional media, in the conversation about what you're going to ask or what you're going to do when you have access. And I bring that up because you know, one of the things I'm doing right now is you know, and I've worked for the, you know, the, the biggest news organization, which is Yahoo. I've worked for maybe the best, the New York Times. And now I do some pop culture news um, and, and music news stuff. And every time I go and interview somebody from Heroes or every time I go interview somebody from uh, My Chemical Romance or Fall Out Boy, I actually solicit all the questions from my <coughs> fans, from my audience, and then I send my, my super user in to ask those questions. And so it's a very small thing, but the obligation comes down to how we manifest it as a media company every day is something we're figuring out. We're in the muck and mire of that. But my obligation is, is to make sure we get it right, that we take the bands or the pop culture icons and we get the fans and the people that care about those things really close together and feel connected with each other. And that our jobs as intermediaries is to create that bond and to have that conversation. And so now we can do it much more fluidly with the discourse with our audience on a daily basis to help that be much more authentic, much clearer, and resonate more with them on a daily basis. So I think there's a tremendous obligation now, and there's much, much more transparency about whether you're doing a good job or a bad job with that right now because of the amount of information that's out there. So the social contract for me, for, uh, for any media organization, or for anybody who has access to something, is to be credible and accurate and to do a good job in making whoever's reading their material feel passionate and close to the, pa close to the subject and passionate about it because it was so well dis discussed. Yeah. Oh. I'm going to propose we throw away the word social, the word social contract for a minute. Um, uh, Henry, we don't need to go ask us what defines Web 2.0 and what their approaches are, because Tim actually wrote a whole essay about it. And you can just go Google it. What is Web 2.0? Tim O'Reilly. It'll pop up. It'll be the number one result on Google. And I think a key thing about how Web 2.0 functions with whatever pejorative term we choose, UGC, you know, whatever, user-generated content, whatever. One of the bullet items about Web 2.0 that we cannot ignore is metadata. 
Web 2.0 fundamentally does not give a crap what you are creating. What Web 2.0 wants to do is how often you click on it, where you came from, where you're going, so they can sell that. That is the fundamental business model of Web 2.0, mm -hmm. metadata. Right? And it's, it's a core premise of pretty much all the Web 2.0 companies. They invite the participation so that they can measure it. When you look at the core, um, when you look at the, the premises of Web 2.0 development, it is things like you know, light APIs and uh, small pieces loosely joined and da, 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 all these other things. But it's also, hey, it's a database. The web is a database. Add to the database, right? Um, the content is there so that we can watch people skittering across it. And I think that understanding that and understanding that the Web 2.0 business models are premised on that is really, really, really important to understanding the way in which the Web 2.0 companies interact with the content creators, both the professional ones and the amateur ones. Because um, it, many of the Web 2.0 companies don't have that much investment in what the content is. Right? They really don't. So LiveJournal, happy to host all the slash in the world until it starts impacting what kind of metadata they're going to be able to gather and who they're going to be able to sell it to. Then it becomes a business issue, right? Until then, eh, they're like, oh, wow, look at that. We have an awful lot of goth furry porn. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's useful. I can sell that, right? And sure enough, they can. So it's, it's important to realize that a lot of the web tool companies, for example, target... Um, Target user content, I, I mean, even brazenly, right? Uh, gosh, you look at so many of the ones that don't even seem like user content that are attempting to essentially steal other people's databases, right? The basic premise, for example, of a Facebook app is stealing Facebook's user database. The basic premise of Doppler is stealing Sabre's database, right? I mean, that's what they're built on. That is the game of Web 2.0. And so I th I, you know, when we think about it in terms of fan labor, right, and, and who owns the data, right, to some degree, and I realize this is on a tangent to the panel, but it's, it's really important. We're asking almost the wrong question, right? LiveJournal doesn't make the claim to own the slash fiction. The real question is who owns the user profile of the person who wrote the slash fiction, right? And, and that's really what they're after, right, is, is the market data, the marketing data. I see media people nodding. So, I mean, it, it's, it's an interesting tension, right? Because um, the, that's why things like FanLib go spectacularly south, right? That's, that's, that right there is, is the conflict. That's why LiveJournal can stumble in handling it. Because to some degree, they, you know, it, it didn't have to be fan fiction. It could have been music. It could just as easily, instead of fan lib, it could have been garage band and splat. Same issue could have happened. And it, it just boils down to whether or not they are being smart about, and gosh, I'm going to be really cynical here, being smart about managing the clueless creators that they are watching with their cameras as they let them into their pens. Um. Right? So, and, and you do have to be somewhat cynical about it because it is kind of a core business premise. Well, well 
I just say, just to respond to that a little, it gets me, because I think a lot about that. Being a company, <laughs> but, you know, uh, the, I think the idea about metadata and where the databases are and where the data is and the user identity, that's the ultimate answer to where the business model is going, where people's sense of privacy has to go, and where our concerns going forward from. I think the real world that I live in today at the business model is this. I think there's a lot of Web 2.0 companies out there that actually wish they had the sophistication and the infrastructure to do the kind of behavioral targeting to deal with all that information. So what you're seeing is a lot of business opportunities now coming up around collecting, gathering, uh, targeting. You're looking at all the acquisitions that are happening between Google and AOL to create targeting targeting and that sort of thing. So that's a real thing about where we're going. That's the sort of fast track of the business. In the middle of that right now though, not, you know, because I, I, and I'm as cynical as you about that sort of, you know, a few years out, but right now in the middle of that right now, I think actually, just want to talk about the verticalized social networks because I think they're, you know, it, that's, you know, I think it does matter, you know, LiveJournal was a platform that got taken up by, a, you know, maybe by a certain kind of audience. Um, you know, MySpace got taken up by music very, very successfully. Facebook is maybe taken up by college students. But, you know, in the world that I live in now, it's legitimate. You know, I'm about music. I'm about, I am the number one emo music social network out there. I have passionate, dark children, you know, who really care about these bands who spend a lot of time with me. And you know what, it matters to me that I have a space for them on the internet where they can go and be with other people like that. And I'm actually, um, I can do well by advertisers just because I can say very clearly, I have this many, traditional media, I have this many users, they're 14 to 16, they are interested in X, Y, and Z about music. So it still works for traditional. Uh, we are in a robust rev um, revival of re straight up media opportunities for more macro mass targeting. You know, I'm not denying where we're going, I'm just saying that that, uh, and, and we're in an academic institution, we want to think theoretically about where we're going. But right now I think it's, there's something to be said for creating good spaces for people that are targeted and where you put up, the, they're all the same platform, but where you decorate the room and put up the wallpaper to make it a good home for people who really care about something. And you can do that today uh, and create a space for people. You can do it as a media company, anybody can do it. It doesn't say who can do it, but anybody can basically take a platform, take Ning, take anything out there, and roll out the wallpaper and decorate it up to be an incredible clubhouse for any kind of thing that somebody's interested in. And actually you can make, if you can get a few people there, you can actually make a buck. Yeah, and, and I, I, just to be clear, I don't want it to sound too cynical, because I think I'm more cynical by and large, <laughs> I, you know, but by and large I think many of these communities are created by people who are super fans, right? Um, I just think that it, it, you know, there is an interesting moment, which is actually the moment when they hit scale, mm -hmm. right? They hit scale, then the business needs really become important. And that's the moment when you, know, you can build the perfect home that, to bring the people that you love, right? Because many of these are created out of love. And then, holy crap, I have this enormous bandwidth bill, and, right? and then all of a sudden, the business needs do start to drive the agenda. And by that time, honestly, the person who created it is probably getting shoved aside. But, you know, but that's, that's often how it goes. So I'm, I'm not denying the, there is a huge amount of idealism that often goes into the inception and at smaller scales, often the maintenance. And sometimes it gets lost depending on what the costs are because business does tend to start driving things. But that's maybe, 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 maybe at the end of the day, that's where authenticity lies. Maybe it's just a bunch of micromedia. You know, maybe it, that, I think that's where you're going to see the, you know, the fragmentation, real fragmentation around authentic, you know, why particular bloggers have so much audience. That's, that's the disaggregation that says people don't want to, when something scales, it's no longer authentic. So. Sometimes authenticity still makes the bank, too. Yeah. Um, great example in the game space is Club Penguin. Mm -hmm. 
you guys know Club Penguin? Yeah. Those guys are incredibly devoted to making clean entertainment for kids. I mean, they just, in part, right, they, they're doing Club Penguin because they think things like Disney aren't clean enough, hmm. right? And, and <laughs> these are guys who moved to rural Canada in order to raise their children in the environment they felt was right. And they're getting offers to get bought out, and they say, we donate 10% of all profits to charity. We're not going to sell unless you accept that as a clause. But they sold. And they sold. And they sold. And to Disney. <laughs> well, they need to clean up their act, Disney, so that's good. But they retain that, and they retain their authenticity, and they retain their, their integrity, right? And uh, so authenticity still is what connects you to the end user. You, know, you lose that. You know, as soon as the end user figures out that it's actually driven by the suits, that's when you're in real trouble. Because right? then, right. then you Mark has been trying to get in here, so let me let me make sure you get a chance to speak, Mark. Well, I think it's it's important to to when we think about fan labor or the social contract between producers and consumers, or between producers and create prosumers or creating users. This essentially doesn't really have anything to do with the internet or something. I mean, people have always been creative and productive with the way they consume symbolic content, whatever that's a painting or a statue or which they used to paint in these horrible green and violet colors in ancient Greece or, or um, you know, something they put on YouTube. So, so I, I, I'm, I'm going back to, to sort of the work that needs to be done in order to create anything. And, and in that, I think the social contract is the same for, um, for people who do this professionally and people do, who do this... Um, um, amateuristically or people who are consumers and people who are producers or whatever is that is is you know it's well uh, let me give you an example uh, um, um, uh, journalists have these I'm going back to journalists for a moment have this weird thing is that in, in if you talk with them about their audience they say I, I, I wish I heard more from the audience I mean I wish we could get more response and 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 I remember my second internship I'm just going to go back to my internships I wrote a review of a concert of Marillion in Amsterdam now there isn't almost a band especially in the 80s that had such a passionate and large uh, uh, and media savvy following as Marillion especially after Fish left um, and um, and so I I wrote that the concert was crap and because I was a fan of fish and fish left. And, um, <laughs> and so the newspaper got hundreds of letters to the editor. And all of a sudden within the newsroom, I was a hero. I was this, this, this you know, stupid intern, 19 years old. But I was a hero because I got all this response from the audience. So you'd imagine you know, these are professional media makers that really, really care about the audience. Yes, but... Uh, does that mean that they would write a response or we would maybe do an expose or we go back and interview Marillion or do any kind of follow-up or respond to any of these letters or print them? No, of course not. <laughs> Come on. I mean, they're just a bunch of stupid Marillion fans. But the number of letters counts towards them. And that's a weird paradox. That, and, and I think that goes for a lot of fans too, but I didn't do research on fans, is that the, the basic social contract consists of two values, is leave me alone, I want to be able to do what I want to do, but acknowledge what I'm doing. And, 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 and those are the two fundamental values that drive a lot of creative work, uh, whether it's a professional or a fan. That's, uh, and, 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 and so that should be the basis. I mean, journalists all over the world are very different. You go to China, they work on different conditions than in the US or in the Netherlands or in Brazil. They agree 99%, and this is actually an actual figure from research, on one thing 
is like an, uh, autonomy, professional autonomy. They don't want to serve special interests, the state, my editor, the advertiser, whatever. I want to tell the stories that I want to write to change the world and make the world a better place and safe for my children in rural Canada. And 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 so, so it's it's and that I mean that's everywhere and all uh, and, uh, regardless of what kind of professional you're talk, talk, talking with, and um, um, and, that, and that's really cool and and it's, it's very cool that fan, I mean that's the base for my argument that media workers are fans too, or actually they're, maybe they are the super fans. Uh, although there are also a lot of media workers that don't really produce all that much, so I don't know. But uh, anyway, so, so that will be the, the very basic, simple answer for me to that question. The basis of the social contract between users and consumers, or between producers and consumers, should be leave me alone but acknowledge what I'm doing. All right, so turning back to the audience, the top-rated question on the board is, Henry, can we get paid for generating this content? Uh, and my first answer is because this is a digital medium, we consider this promotional material. Uh, the second and more serious question is, is to use that as a spin into thinking about what, what were the expectations about remuneration for user-generated content? That is, you know, I've sometimes publicly been advocating that fans, if wealth is produced off fans, that fans should get a share of that wealth. But I think fans, many fans, don't want money. They don't want their work commodified. They don't want it in an economic system at all. And so that fundamentally raises some questions about what counts as value, what counts as incentives. And that brings us to the second-rated question up there, which is I'd like to hear more, especially from Ms. Oster, about what incentives and rewards are being offered to, uh, to uh, users, consumers, fans, producing content today that are successful and popular, and what incentives uh, rewards are being developed. So let me open that whole space up for value, incentive, motive for user-generated content. And Kat, you look like you were about to jump in. Oh, uh, I was just going to say that in a lot of cases, it's the idea of companies providing some kind of reward, incentive, et cetera, is, is so beside the point. Uh, a lot of fans just are not doing it for that reason. and. In fact, in, within fanish culture, one of the bit you were mentioning, uh, you know, leave me alone, do what I want to do, what I want to do, but acknowledge my work. But the second you start bringing money into it, the second you start that starts getting commercial. Then it start, and a lot of the reason a lot of fans write fan fiction or create fan vids or whatever, outside of the, which is to be outside of this commercial milieu, where because once you bring money into it, once you get peop, the media companies setting up, as you said, setting up spaces, setting up clubhouses, etc., it brings in the idea of control. Okay, uh, who's going to be allowed into this clubhouse? Is it the people who are only producing what is going to make the media company happy? Uh, if you get paid, okay, well now you've entered into a commercial transaction here. Uh, if you're, pu you know, you're, if you're publishing your stories online and you're not getting paid for it, you're just doing it for the hell of it for other fans to read and enjoy and comment on. Well, you start getting remunerated for that. Well, what are you going to be expected to do in return? Are you going to be, are you going to have the same kind of freedom? That you did, and no, a lot of fans write fan fiction. Even professional writers write fan fiction, publish it on the web, because it frees them from the constraints of commercial publishing. You know, you do not have to write to a template. You do not have to, uh, you know, write what a publishing company thinks it can sell. You can write what you want. You can write what the group of people, the group of fans that you hang out with, especially wants to see. And though there are certainly hierarchies of value uh, you know various uh, groups within fandom there are people who have a lot of social capital etc but that's something that sort of springs organically from 
what fans themselves want. And once you start bringing media companies into it, once you start bringing money into it, control from an outside source is, is the perception. I mean, I don't want to, I'm going to, Julie Levin Russo, I think, who was talked in your blog about, uh, you know, free labor is not, always, is not always exploited labor. And she said she didn't want to set up a binary between fans and the powers that be. And we must protect the autonomy of fans from the powers that be. But at the same time, there is a sense that, you know, fans are already doing a lot of this material. Fans are setting up their own spaces. Fans are giving each other the remuneration that they want. You know, attention, feedback. Vanish feedback process is incredibly powerful and fast. Uh, feedback, um, you know, support for what they're doing, a space to play. Fans are already creating that for themselves. And, if, and there's always this feeling that if media companies, uh, if commercial enterprises try to enter into that, it's going to, there's <coughs> control. There's too much control, and it might tip the balance towards people who are willing to play by the c corporation's rules. Um, I, I just was going to, there's a few things that come to mind, um, and I can talk more about other models that are out there. But just to say, the one thing I really want to try to go out on a limb and explain here is, is that now, I've been working for media companies for a long time, and I am not under the illusion of what I said, wallpaper the room and do that. Anybody can do that. It's, it, you're, there, there are, you know, it, it's a cornucopia of stuff out there. Sometimes it's a crapotopia of stuff out there. <laughs> sometimes, it, you know, sometimes it's you know, better or worse because of the traditions of a media company's involvement or a passionate fan doing something. The beauty is, is everybody and anybody is out there. And it is only... And you have a choice whether you want to live in a mediated world where a media company exists or a mediated world where just <coughs> computer-mediated uh, communication exists or you want to live in a mediated world where you choose by your own, you know, your own decision to engage in an economic situation. Whereas you know, the economic engine of all of this right now, if you want to make money, is AdSense and the ability for anybody to schlub an ad on their thing and make money. So what I would love to see studied out there is all these people who do it for the passion and the love and all these things who are unmediated by media companies. And why don't we study them to see what happens to them and their products one by one when they put AdSense on and they begin to try to optimize the yield and their content <laughs> begins to change. And, you know, nobody who, you know, if you, it's, you don't have to, you can, you can slap the code on your page now. You don't have to go to a media company to be co-opted by a media company. You just have to say, I'm in this for a commercial reason. I'm in this for one particular kind of roar, which is remuneration, which is money in the bank, ka-ching, ka-ching. And, yeah. Well, in fandom, if you try that, I mean, if you try to, I mean, it's a long tradition in fandom to, you know, sell, you know, back in zine days, you'd sell the zines and so forth because, you know, bandwidth <laughs> costs much. money. You know, yeah, for cost, essentially. You know, just trying to recoup cost, you know, operate for donations or, you know, put ads like fanfiction.net has ads up on its site to, you know, basically cover costs. But you start going beyond that. One of the really big rules in fandom uh, that we'll get is don't make money. Don't try and make a profit. Don't try and turn a profit off of it. And it's not just out of safety fears. It's considered incredibly wanky. And I'm not saying that, I mean, I get that as, some, you know, we, we live in a world, a, a diverse world of cultures and communities and things that go on simultaneously. And the title of this panel is, it, it, is based on very much around the fan culture. And that's authentic, real, and is what it is. But in the web 2.0 world of basically consumers or anybody creating content and for whatever motivation, that's much wider 
than the fanfic world, which mm -hmm. you, you yeah. displayed ex extremely authentically. And, 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 and just to quickly comment, you know, I'd love to hear other examples out there, and I'm just going to give some very rote ones in terms of rewards and incentives, because I think a lot of them are crap, and I think a lot of them dis <laughs> disincent, and that's why I walk, around, walk into walls thinking about this a lot, like how you would do this right to actually create something that was good for all rather than bad, and create something that wasn't just what was written off because it was politically incorrect, but because it was correct in some way, that it actually had some enabling ca capability. And um, so you know, the, the two things that I see out there, examples I look at right now that came to mind is something like Rever, which I think was very forward-looking in terms of people creating and sharing media, and Rever was a great idea, and, and it still is a great idea, and I'm sure it's a great company, but they just haven't taken off the way they thought. They haven't basically been able to pay that many people. They didn't have maybe enough scale to have that vision that they could pay people to create from the start. And so, you know, maybe Google will, will figure that out someday. But that was a great, that was one where we're going to pay people to do this, and people just want pay, and that's, we get that, and we're going to pay them. And, you know, it's kind of off the radar now, although it was, you know, it's yesterday's lunch, but two years ago it was anything everybody was talking about. And I'm probably yesterday's lunch in two weeks, but anyway. And then the other one that's just sort of nice is, um, that was co-opted somehow is TV.com, which is now part of CNET, which was a TV bulletin board in the past. I can't mm -hmm. really remember which one it is right now, but I'm just using it as an example as one that was like gobbled up but seems to continue to live on. And they have a simple, and across a lot of the, the CNET sites I think are quite good, where they, they have kind of a, you know, a, a game culture there where people, they, they review things, they do recaps, they do very, very basic things that come with their passion for something, and they get various badges. Now, they're not get, getting any pay for anything, but clearly, you know, you have a little scale where you get to be, you know, Gene Siskel or somebody else, and actually, I can't quite figure out what you get and how you get it, but I look at it a lot going, where do they explain these badges? People just seem to get them, and I just not... Mm -hmm. I'm not that interested in the TV shows to get a badge, so. <laughs> but anyway, the point is, so, so you know, things that people get excited about. And I think the best example for rewards and incentives for me comes from, um, um, from uh, fantasy sports leagues. I think that's a really great place where you see all kinds of things working and people working together in economies of people participating and competing and getting rewards and trophies. And, you know, <coughs> that, that's very exciting. And they're not creating fan fiction, but, you know, them, they're picking a team, and that's actually something you're making too, and that's competitive. It's very, it's a, um, maybe a different reward system because it's really built in there. You want your badge, you want your this, you want all that stuff ego wise. It's all in there. But it still is creative. It's like, you know, picking 10 players might not stand up to the person in some community is something is cool, but you know, if I could pick 10 players, I might um, never go to work again. <laughs> that's kind of organic to fantasy so, sports leagues in and of itself, though. Yeah. That there's somebody who's going to win and somebody who's going to lose. Yeah. That a lot of fan communities don't really have that. And I think if media, there's always the danger if corporations get involved, it kind of creates a system of winners and losers in a way that isn't, you know, if somebody gets, if somebody gets their fan fiction chosen and the producers acknowledge it and they say, this is wonderful, we want to buy your story so we can use it for a script or whatever, or we want to use your vid as a pro, as a promote, as an advertisement for our show, then it kind of, it, it's like the media companies are picking prom queens. Mm -hmm. You know, it's coming from the outside. It's one thing if the fanish community, you know, there's a general feeling among fans. I keep talking in this broad sense. I, keep, I really need to stop talking about fans as if they're monolithic because I'm really kind of talking about a group of fans that I'm most familiar with. This is LJ-based fans of various media who are very much politically aware and very politically engaged who talk about this material a lot. But there is this sense that you're, pick, you're picking the homecoming court. Yeah, you know, the prom court, and uh, what about when the, the community picks it? Though? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a, really, it's a different thing. And, when the community and, picks and it. I think more often than not, that you know, that's the one thing I think 
big media is figuring out it's like better to have them pick. So, mm -hmm. and so often, who you picks know, is a big issue, though. Exactly, and often it's really kind of hard to gauge that unless you're really deeply embedded in the community, because the the social stratification of fandom can be really impenetrable unless you're involved in it. How do you know who is sitting at the top? How do you how do you know who's the most popular? How do you know this? How do you know who's the most respected and by whom? It can be really hard to tell that because there's so many different webs within even with it within any particular fandom is one the size of Harry Potter. You've got little tiny subgroups within you know, like you've got slash fandom, but then you've got individual ships and then you've got people that are, it's are so there, hard to determine. Are there how that. much reputation scoring is in that world other than reads in terms of you know, in my world now I, I mean I'll count I because I can't quite count for advertisers, I can count for all mm -hmm. my content and everything else, you know, I can count how many times you were rated, you know, I'm interested in how many times you were rated, how many things you read, you know, how many things you come, you know, you take, you know, you know, we're constantly sorting algorithms of all these inputs trying to figure out how to, to optimize and it's for the content experience. Yeah, and it's hard to measure that in fandom context. It can be very, I mean, you can look at number of comments a story gets. I mean, that could give you an idea, but a, half of that could just be you know, if you're talking about Web 2.0, not caring about the content, how you know if somebody gets 60 comments in the story, 30 of that could be the author and her best friend going back and forth about something. You know, you just uh, yeah, don't but know. Yeah, a lot of the metadata actually these days it's doing things like semantic parsing to figure out which comments are significant, and mm -hmm. it, okay. so believe stuff. me, that's a <laughs> plenty of that. So I, I find it fascinating that we essentially ran as far away from Henry's question as possible very quickly, um, <laughs> but because where we landed was at don't pay the fans very quickly and and many cultural reasons why I, I could give examples of the same thing from what's other a currency meanings. I mean like I said I don't think we say because the fundamental say. currency is primarily reputation in the community Interesting. and generally whoever's running the space isn't necessarily seen as being in the community because they're okay. in a position of authority gotcha. yeah. right so we very quickly landed that and it's not at all a new pattern right I mean you can go way back um, but, I mean, there's all, there's all kinds of examples, right? So, um, when you look at um, earlier fandom in, you know, in the earlier days that Henry was referencing and the gap that existed between um, writers for zines, writers who ended up breaking into the magazines, and then some of those writers who went on to become editors, right? And, uh, you know, today most of the genre imprints are actually... Like, uh, if you look at, like, if you pick up fantasy novels or science fiction novels, Bayon Books, well, that's Jim Bayon. And Daw Books, well, that's Don Walheim. And, you know, and they were people who were fans and worked their way up. So, uh, you know, or you look at, uh, in terms of the social contract, you look at uh, the Dragon Riders of Pern fandom, which uh, Anne McCaffrey gave them permission to create fan material for uh, virtual worlds, for games, text muds, in, in the 80s and 90s, as long as they didn't make money. And they were f way, way, way more obsessive and anal about maintaining fictional integrity than even Paramount is with Star Trek, right? Because they said, oh, she gets it, therefore we're going to be the ones who enforce the rule, and they, they enforced it more strictly than, than what probably she would have herself. So, you know, that is, that's not a new pattern, right? And, and it does have those, those elements in it. So I, I guess I wonder kind of whether we ever answered Henry's question because I, you know, I, I'm racking my brain and actually every instance that I can think of where come and oh, by the way, you can earn money 
was kind of part of the equation. I can't remember a case where culturally it hasn't gone south to some degree, hmm. right? And, and actually, mp3.com, it went south to some degree. There was a very clear split between yeah. the people who were there for the message boards in the community and the people who were there to sell records. Um, Second Life is a great example of a community with um, it's really frightening the number of avatars who log in and say, all right, the article said I could make money, mm. <laughs> right? I mean, instantly, right? And it has a very distorting effect on what could and should be a grassroots kind of affair. So I, I, I guess I, I, I throw it back to you and mm. I go, uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's ever worked. Jordan, you look like you wanted to get in on that. Before well, I go nice, back to it. That's what the conversation is. It sort of keeps iterating through lots of different interesting ideas that you can jump in at any given point. The one that's in my head right now is the, you know, if you, if you step it up a level, you've got this sort of natural spectrum between the, the, the you might call the professionals and the amateurs. But in some senses, there's another oblique dimension, which is the degree to which the individual who's creating the content is creating it for the purpose of maximizing economic return. Right, so it's you know the classic situation of the radio station owner who doesn't give a fuck what's on the radio station, as long as he's getting the most money out of it. So he changes from country music to rock and roll to news radio, whatever, and then he find, finds the one that gets the best audience and sits in on that. Right, and then to the degree to which they're 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 authentically engaging in some form of of, of expression, right? and, and even that probably has different nuances which have to do with their fundamental psychology. They're trying to express something which is important to them and don't really care what anybody else thinks. They're trying to connect with lots of other people in some kind of relationship, social perspective. Um, and I, I think there's some, actually some interesting thinking that can be done, which I frankly don't think has actually been done very efficiently about what different kinds of structures uh, impact the kinds of things you like to set your variables on. You know, in, in, in what Second Life does, what I think is very interesting is, is it, it makes it all gray. Are you a professional? Are you an amateur? It doesn't really matter. It, it really depends on why you're doing it and what the effectiveness is. And so let me just add one little piece here. You know, the debate that happened in the music world was really all about a debate on the, the spectrum of quality. And so the idea was that if you invest money, you invest time, you invest your life, people invest marketing dollars, production dollars, uh, everything else into the creation of a piece of music, then that will be better and therefore is a more important thing for us to focus on than what might happen in an environment where it's pure amateur, all the way down to the, like, the lowest level of you and just a guy who picks up a keyboard and just plinks away and doesn't know what he's doing, right? So you've got this notion of, of investment, investment along multiple different dimensions against an arc of quality of output. And you know, that's, that, that to me, I think, is ultimately creates the, the, the way to analyze the problem. Right? If we find that the, the, uh, the allocation of economic value to fan-based fiction ultimately net-net raises the game of the total output of the quality of stuff that is generated, then that is probably a reasonable thing to do. If we find, on the other hand, that it actually over time lowers the level of the quality, and it can do that in a lot of different ways, right? It might create this acceleration where 98% of the fans end up being in the, in the, the hoi polloi and 2% end up going into major media, where they immediately stop doing what they love and start becoming mass producers of things that they're rhetorically good at doing, then that's probably a bad direction. Now, I can definitely say right now, Nobody has any idea what the real answer to that question is, but I think that we can actually frame it in such a way that we can, I think, crawl through it and reach some reasonable resolutions. Uh, my intu intuitively, I agree with everybody here. Intuitively, <laughs> as soon as you add dough to the equation, things get bad real quick. Yep. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, the, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, Mark. No. Well, what I, I, uh, no, I just, I'm always thinking, of, I just think that when I look at my users and all the places I've been, there's other motivations than dough, and then just 
you know. Rock and roll, man. That's I remember it. talking about that exactly. with uh, a really, really uh, famous uh, artist in the rock and roll environment who was past retirement age. And we were talking about this whole notion of the music labels. Remember when the music labels put forward the notion that if, if musicians didn't get paid, then music would go away? And he put it very succinctly. As, as, long, as, as long as chicks go for guys who play guitar, there'll be guys who play guitar. Yeah. <laughs> that's the way it goes. So there's a lot of ways you can get your value. Yeah. Well, and that's... There are plenty of examples. I, I mean, I'm just and, thinking and, of... And, and Dutch interns. Yeah, totally. Yeah. No. But Absolutely. When we talk about dough, we stop the conversation, I think. Well, the, no, not necessarily. I mean, there are, like, for example, in um, if you look at different industries, I mean, fan, I mean, we kind of, often when we talk about fans, we sort of implicitly go towards popular culture and mainstream sort of uh, brands in, in that domain. But if you look at just, in general speaking, how media companies can, can, can reward uh, um, 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 producing customers. Um, like, for example, in journalism, there's a British company called Scooped, what they do is uh, they ask people to make pictures of news events, um, submit them to their website. They then try to sell those pictures to professional news organizations and keep 20% of the income and the rest goes back to the picture taker. So they're, they're like a portal for, for, for sort of citizen journalism. They were acquired too. They were acquired too. There's a, an independent one that just started in the Netherlands called Scoops, which basically provides the same service but does it with video. And you witnessed news that I did. I'm just saying, yeah. it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's hard a, to, it's, anyway, there's but hard at, to make a more. Anyway, so that's, uh, <laughs> um, um, th that, that would be a model that um, in the Netherlands, um, you can get an example from my own country, um, and the mall, the company that originally brought you Big Brother, uh, um, um, recently started a, a project with regional broadcaster organizations called ICOP TV, which means me, uh, I on television. And um, it gives people in communities digital cameras to make videos. I mean, they could be news things, they could be documentaries, they could be fun, little comedies. And um, they get sort of edited collaboratively with a professional editor. Uh, but ultimately, the, the, the person making the video has the final say, and that goes on a special television show that is aired every Saturday night at prime time. Um, and they get part of the, the um, advertising revenue for that. Um, um, and they get the camera and all that kind of stuff. So you got, um, well, um, other types of enumeration. Amazon.com has all these user book reviews, right? Um, so a couple of my students did a project last year where they contacted the top 20 of, the, of book reviewers and asked them to do an interview, and um, um, uh, about uh, eight of them uh, said, yeah, sure. And uh, what it turns out that all of them um, um, uh, did, wrote so many book reviews, sometimes multiple ones per day, because they get a lot of free stuff from publishers, like books and other requests to review stuff. And a lot of them, of course, are budding writers that use the reviews to get an in with publishers. So there's a lot of there's an exchange there too, and a reward structure there too. Um, in the game industry, it's pretty common sense that if you really want to have a good shot at getting a job at a certain specific companies, that the best thing you can do for yourself is to mod. In other words, to modify existing games and upload them for free and get known. I mean, the J Game Development Conference actually has an award for best mod. It, and that's a, at a conference for professional game developers. So it's sort of this incorporation of producing consumers into professional culture and actually thus rewarding them with giving them work, real jobs, the um, real between. Um, but, but it's important um, to point out that most of your, all of them except the first one, mm -hmm. those aren't the company directly providing reward to the user, it's the larger ecology providing reward to the user, mm -hmm. right? So um, 
it, it, it usually, for example, if, if it's game mods, sure, every once in a while the company might give a prize for best mod and they'll run a contest or something, but it's not like there's an established uh, process there where, oh, best mod this week and we give them the most downloaded gets a cut of revenue or something like that. It's, it, comes, it comes out of the ecology. So people who are contributing to Amazon are getting the benefits from the publishers, right? So it's, it's an indirect relationship. It's yeah. not a direct relationship. Oh, oh totally. But, but it, I, The I, first I, ones sounded yeah. more like American Idol or something. I think the people at the news site you described, that sounds like people going, hey, I've got a one in X chance of breaking in, right? It, it, it's almost part of the initial pitch that, oh, this is a path towards professionalism, right? Which, you know, so those two seem like two different things. Well, yes, I, I agree, but I, I guess what I'm trying to do is just I'm throwing out a couple of examples to also deconstruct this notion that all that fans are this sort of communal people that don't care about, me, and then, oh, you yeah. know, and all this happy-go-lucky, and we're all... <laughs> There's yeah. lots of different yeah. variations there, yeah. and a lot of producing consumers are in it for all kinds of reward. and there's different solutions to that. And I mean, uh, um, and, and of course, you know, uh, reality television as a genre is based on rewarding people to 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 you know to do stuff. Maybe, so I just one thing I want to say. One of the things about all this, you know, producer stuff. Uh, is uh, we all think about it in terms of our, our ugly world of MBAs and businesses and maximizing profit. I prefer to look at it in the way of a craft guild where you used to do, you know, you studied something, you learned it, and eventually you got to a place where you were paid. And it's a much more organic and much more uh, useful way of looking at this economy. Is that people used to, you, you, you went into something because maybe you loved it or maybe you had to, but you became skilled at it by working with other people. And then you, maybe if you chose to at one point, maybe that became your profession. Yeah, I, I still think that that puts professionalization, getting paid for it at the top of the hierarchy, at the top of the ladder, as if that's something that we should be striving for. No, we don't have to. Yeah. Yeah, we don't have to. And it, well, it's also something that, you know, just speaking from a fan fiction perspective, you can do stuff in fanfic that you can't do if you're trying to publish. Why would you want to give up that freedom if it's, if you, there are plenty of fans who want to be professional writers and who have capitalized on their success as fan fiction writers to become professional authors. Like, you know, Diane Duane is a famous example. Mm -hmm. A lot of sci-fi, as you said, sci-fi yes. and fantasy. Sure. That's, you know, a very common uh, thing. But at the same time, the idea, you know, so there's a real kind of uh, perception outside fandom community that, well, if, you, if you're such a good writer, why don't you write real stories? Why don't you try to publish? Why don't you use original characters? And it's like, well, that's missing the point. Does, uh, I, I, does everybody play, you know, go into Little League because they want to be a professional ball player one day? I, I don't think yeah. so. Sometimes you do it for the love of the game. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something. I guess when I talk about craft, I want to talk a little about for the love of doing something mm -hmm. and the passion for doing it, for the caring and the authenticity and the, the who you are. And that's more how I meant it. Okay. Yeah, I think there's actually an, an interesting underlying <clears throat> thread that I don't think has been made explicit, but I'd like to make it explicit. And it's not just not explicit here, but it's not explicit generally, which is the question of the balance between cultural production and economic production. Yeah. Right? What we're all sort of implicitly saying is we ought to prioritize and valorize cultural production over economic production. Economic production should be a secondary valence. Not a zero, right? This is a question of optimization, but not primary. And when it becomes primary, you end up having significant problems. That, by the way, of course, is a social statement, right? If we, if we live in an environment where fundamentally what is meaningful is the result of cultural production. If we do not prioritize cultural production, then we are creating a meaningless culture, which I think we can all agree is probably a bad idea. 
Oddly enough, though, if you actually sort of spend time thinking about it and listening to the, the, the stories that are being told, nobody really talks about that very much. You don't hear a lot of arguments being made about the prioritization of cultural production and ensuring that our cultural production is, in fact, effective, good, healthy, stimulating, all those various things that you'd like to see. Um, they either are from an orientation of protection, right? There's a, there's a, there's a, a protective story you can tell, and there's an orientation of, of economics. You know, you, it's, it's completely legitimate to create something which stimulates the neuro and valorize cultural production over economic production. Economic production should be a secondary valence. Not a zero, right? This is a question of optimization, but not primary. And when it becomes primary, you end up having significant problems. That, by the way, of course, is a social statement, right? If we, if we live in an environment where fundamentally what is meaningful is the result of cultural production. If we do not prioritize cultural production, then we are creating a meaningless culture, which I think we can all agree is probably a bad idea. Oddly enough, though, if you actually sort of spend time thinking about it and listening to the, the, the stories that are being told, nobody really talks about that very much. You don't hear a lot of arguments being made about the prioritization of cultural production and ensuring that our cultural production is, in fact, effective, good, healthy, stimulating, all those various things that you'd like to see. Um, they either are from an orientation of protection, right? There's a, there's a, there's a, a protective story you can tell, and there's an orientation of, of economics. You know, you, it's, it's completely legitimate to create something which stimulates the neurochemistry of a large number of people without regard to anything else. But it's sort of considered very, very uh, uh, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the edges to create something because it's for the love of the game. And it almost, well, almost feels even hackneyed to say it. Not in open source community, not in right. the copy fight community, mm -hmm. for example. I mean, what you just articulated is actually kind of the core premise of the copy fighting side of the argument there. Mm -hmm. um, so it, I, I don't think that it's, it's completely buried. But I do think that... Again, I think this is kind of an artifact of literally just like the last century and a half. Mm. Because, again, historically, for 99.99999, keep going, put a little line over the nines, you know, of, actually, of I, cultural creators, it couldn't, like physically couldn't be about the economic value. I'm actually going to dispute that. Because yeah, what I'll do too. is I'll, I'll take religion. <laughs> and put religion in smack dab in the middle of cultural creators. And clearly, from the moment cultural creation was invented and institutionalized, they figured out real quick how to create power and, out of and it. And 99.999% of the priests didn't get a lot of money out of it either. Well, that's because right? the, the, mean, the company figured out how to move it to the top. And that, that was also <laughs> the No, and that's, that's, that's my point, right? That, that's exactly my point, right? Just like, um, so you have the, the huge amount of people who don't get money because they're not even lucky enough to belong to the right cooperative organization, right. whatever it might be. And then you have, even within, the op within that group, you're going to get some kind of distribution and it's going to tend to go towards the top. Because it just seems to be that's how humanity tends to work, for better or for worse, regardless of whether Marx is up on the board right now. Um, you know, so you know, we do see it that way. And, and it's important not to lose sight of the fact that some cultural touchstones, right, are, you know, Keats died in a garret of consumption or whatever, sure. right? But Shakespeare was freaking Michael Bay meets Steven Spielberg of his day, right? Yeah. So, you know, it, there's always a curve, but an awful lot of it has always been below any kind of profitability line. Fundamentally, people do do cultural production because they're in love with doing it, right? Mm -hmm. well, so I... I at the risk of cutting off a great discussion, let me turn, since I promised I'd get a few more questions from the board, and, and I want people to start identifying out here 
for questions from the audience, so we'll move to you quickly. I'd like to cluster together three sets of questions that have cropped up on the board. Uh, the first one is, will the creative work of fans ever be more influential in mass culture than the creative work of the mass media establishment? The second one is, can we have meaning in fandom without mass media? And the third one is, I'd like, uh, oops, that's, I've lost it, a group of, of fans in the UK recently pooled their funds and bought a minor league football club. Uh, fantastic. Uh, could you imagine something like this happening in a creative or fan, uh, fan, fan with the creative property? So those three together sort of invite us to think about how is the visibility of fandom in the current moment reshaping the relation, the, the, the operations of mass culture or, or media more generally? And conversely, what, you know, what, 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 to what degree is fandom dependent upon the manufacture of mass media? So let me throw those open for short, quick answers uh, for a complex question. Um, I, I guess uh, I'll answer the first one. Uh, part of, well, the mass influence. Can fandom ever had mass influence? Well, what do you mean by mass influence? Uh, because a lot of, I, I've been harping on this the whole time about, uh, you know, how fan writers, you know, you can do things in fan fiction you can't do if you're trying to uh, appeal to a commercial audience. So much fan fiction is not going to make a whole lot of sense unless you're really deeply embedded in the fandom. And you really kind of have to understand the entire web of canon and fanon and influential fan fiction that goes into this. And it's really... Uh, there's a great quote by, uh, you know, somebody, people have explicitly talked about this in fandom. Uh, I forget who it was who said something like that. Uh, some of the great joys of fan fiction is that it is unpublishable. It doesn't make any sense to people outside of a very particular group. And it's a gorgeous story, but you can't, it's only going to make sense to about 15 people. Okay, why, why should, and it's going to be very influential within that particular group, but as mass influence, and I think that trying to, make fan fiction, fan, I, I keep talking about fan fiction, but fan produced uh, material in general, is all, you know, you can sell it to wider audiences and there's certainly some kinds of fan fiction that could have wide appeals. There's certainly enormously talented creators out there who, you know, it, you know, if all things were fair, would have a huge audience, but then there's some of the material that they're producing which is very specifically for a group of people, a specific group of people. Nobody outside that group's even gonna get it. And that's a joy in and of itself. And I think you know the model of should we have this mass, uh, this mass influence? Is that what we should be aiming for? Well, that kind of ruins the fun of writing for a deeply, deeply engaged and clued in audience. And that may be a tiny group of people. And that's one of the major points of fan fiction and fan production as well, that you're writing for a small group of people who get it. Can I, because I, I, I'm obviously working from a premise that, that extends fandom to include any and all creative activity by people Please. formerly known as the audience, right? <laughs> so, uh, Jay Rosen, Sorry. MOU's quote, uh, not mine. Um, um, fans are, in that sense, fans are insanely powerful already because there isn't, well, I'm an academic, I shouldn't talking absolutes, but I'm doing it anyway, I'm Dutch. Um, um, there hardly isn't a company, a media company in the, in the news industry or in, uh, in the games industry uh, or in advertising right now anymore that isn't talking one way or another about what are we going to do with the co-creating consumer? What are we going to do? Because uh, either, uh, whether you want to or not, I mean, an advertising agency might... And, 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 just a couple of weeks ago, I had a discussion with a creative director. He said, you, you, you might have this great 
idea for a client, like the perfect campaign, and it's, it's got like print ads and a 30-second television spot, and it's perfect for the brand, and then you do the pitch, and the client says, yeah, 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 but Facebook profile, where is it? What about SMS? And we have to do something make with a viral. wiki. Make it viral. And, 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 and they say, but it doesn't make sense with your, 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 the target audience of your brand you know, is like 70 plus. I'm just kidding, but it, it doesn't make any sense. And they say, no, 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 because that's what's hot right now. That's what everybody's talking about. And then they end up being forced to, to do stuff like that. Um, the same in the news industry. I mean, uh, citizen journalism, any variation on that theme. Every single newsroom, especially in the print media, but also in broadcast, is, is dealing with this right now, implementing those strategies, often uh, to, the, to the disrupting the workflow within a newsroom, because most people don't believe in it, or people see that it goes hand-in-hand -hand with layoffs, so you know, they don't trust it, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, fans are already insanely powerful. They completely are changing the way companies operate in that space. Even though you might not see that translated directly into content, to choices being made on the outside, but on the inside, but yes, they are insanely powerful. Now, about fans buying their own football club, well, that is already happening if you think about media workers as being fans that are now sort of, uh, 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 instead of uh, mm. publicly traded, going private again. Uh, Chicago Tribune uh, um, or, or, or uh, other companies, uh, um, uh, media companies in, in, in this space that, for example, choose to remain. Bungie, just uh, uh, cutting ties on Microsoft with Bungie, Bungie with Microsoft. There's still some exclusivity stuff going on. But look how they portray themselves like, oh, finally, we're independent again, even though they still exclusively produce for the Xbox. But... Uh, um, in a way, that's also, in a, for me, that's a similar sort of extension of fans buying back their own company. And it's, uh, uh, or uh, um, um, in, in advertising industry, you, you know, advertising industry, yeah, right, organized in these huge holding firms, uh, Omnicom, uh, uh, and so on and so forth. And you have now uh, smaller holding firms emerging in, in the US and elsewhere that are run by creatives out of the frustration of this power shift that started happening in the early parts of the 21st century of, of creative to account managers. And so in that sense, the creatives are arguably the biggest fans in advertising agencies, although I don't, doesn't, that doesn't mean that I think they're better. Um, 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 uh, and, and the, the reputation that these kind of holding firms have that are run by creatives are fan-type reputations. So, so, so I just wanted to throw that in there as, as, as sort of examples that might not be as visible from the outside, but within companies and the way companies are organized and the creative process is organized, you definitely see a, a, a fan power. Uh, uh, I, I don't know. I'll right. take it further. I argue that, for example, all of hip-hop was created by fan movement, right? I mean, that's how it got started. And you could go back further and say, it's hey, you close. know what? The aggregation of things like um, the various artists in to create Atlantic Records, right? Or, uh, I mean, you can just keep going back. I mean, the, the examples pop up everywhere. Um, a, uh, in the music industry, you think of the artists who got big... Uh, going on a major label, right? They started indie, they joined a major label, then they uh, made enough money to start their own label, and then they went indie again afterwards, right? And uh, we've seen that pattern so many times. Um, uh, like, oh gosh, I mean, there's tons of examples, but like Indigo Girls did that, and Amy Ray now has Damon Records because she loves a teeny tiny niche, you know. She really loves, really, really loves punk, folk, lesbian, protest rock. Great, right? So now there's a label of nothing but that, 
because she can afford it because she went through the whole process with Sony. Right? So th this kind of thing happens a lot. I think that um, in the end, the way we probably need to look at it, and no offense to many of the major media companies with whom I hope I partner fruitfully in business endeavors, <laughs> but um, the new stuff, the cool new shit, and I'm going to say it that way because that's the way the fans will say it. <laughs> the cool new shit doesn't come from the big companies. But, because okay. they do optimize, right? They do optimize for revenue. So, so much of the time, the truly out of left field stuff does come from the fan movement that creates it. And it, often the companies are smart enough to run with the ball, right? Or they were smart enough to hire the people who but, had the cool new idea. But so the, they're outsider the, movements that come in, right? This is all, absolutely, and, and the thing I, I've always said for whatever I've sat in academia or companies or in my living room is that, you know, the, it, the, the greatest thing about social media, Web 2.0, it's like the greatest farm team there ever was. I mean, there's so much talent out there that couldn't break through, couldn't be found. And so what record labels used to do and what uh, editors used to do is people were scouting talent. And so you'd go read somebody who was in the Kansas City Star because there was an awesome columnist, and you'd bring them to New York because they'd be a great awesome columnist. So the, the dynamic has always been innovation, clear voices, you know, talent starts. And then talent creates something that is new, which is source content. Somebody finds source, scales it, it gets mass appeal, and then the world comments on it. And I think a lot of what we're talking about with some of these things is source is where the value has been, the question is, there's so much commentary now, so much sort of postmodern creation on top of things. Is there, a, is there a business in that? Is there, you know, do people, is commentary on things sort of going to create enough economic heat for, for people to be paid off of that? But that's the thing that I, I wanted to comment on is source, scale, commentary, and then meta production, and, and, and so and, as that. And that's really what's happening. And I think as we get a mass of meta production, then you have enough scale for maybe economics of that. That's why I disagree with Jordan that Remix is really new and fresh and different. Right, Jordan, but Jordan? Oh, no, I didn't necessarily say it was new or fresh. I said that's what I'm excited about now. Oh, yeah, I think right. it's making a move that's really starting I, to get, uh, there's some things that are happening that I find to be very interesting. Just two things. First is um, I actually happen to know for a fact that there's a significant amount of activity going on in the sort of the largest uh, areas of, of, of uh, economic and uh, market-making structures to accelerate the rate at which the recipients of cultural product, and that includes football and sports, et cetera, are also the owners of the entities that create those things. Uh, that's going to be happening, and it's going to be happening a lot over the next 20 years for obvious economic reasons, right? It, it shortens the cycle and therefore is more efficient. I mean, ultimately, you know, Radiohead is producing for the audience that is listening to Radiohead. It's sort of meaningless to have everybody else in between if they're just wasting money doing it. There's a, a good economic driver to get you there. Um, and love it or, 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 or hate it, the, the existing marketplace that we're in is really good at economic inefficiencies. Um, the second one is actually, could you, could you restate the second question? Because I thought it was really interesting and also hard. It had to do with ma the necessity of mass media for meaningful... No, it, it, the, I'll read it again. It, it suddenly reappeared on the board. Is there meaning in fandom without mass media? Was the way uh, okay, so right. here's the answer I would give to that. And the answer I would give is that first you have to recognize that, that culture is a medium. Right? And so as a consequence, uh, one can imagine having a, being a fan of the kid down the street who happens to be the best skater uh, in your block. Right? 
And in fact, many of us who grew up in the 70s and 80s may have exactly that exact experience. Now, that only works in an environment where you're immersed in a culture where that particular kind of social relationship can be construed as being meaningful, right? But that's what I'm saying then is that the culture is the medium and is the ultimate medium. Culture is the encoding of the collective set of all media experiences that everybody has. And to the degree to which those things are disseminated via electromagnetic wavelengths or, you know, pieces of ink put on paper is sort of beside the case. What happens is, is the, the, the degree to which ideas of moral valence can propagate themselves through the culture is controlled by the, the way that media works. Right? So the whole point of mass media, why mass media is so important, is that mass media enables a particular subset of potentially very powerful moral valences to be propagated through a, a culture very rapidly and therefore sort of normalizes that culture in a way that is traditionally very difficult to do. But I would say that in fact, yes, it is clearly the case that one can have meaningful experiences at a very micro level without mass media only so long as those experiences are resonating with whatever the local culture happens to produce as being meaningful. Okay, this question, the gentleman down here has got a question, and we'll be happy to see I, more from the audience. There's one over there, Eleanor, so we So um, maybe it's my spent four years in academia in the last couple of years in this, but, you know, uh, Ref, you, you um, spent some time, you know, going out with 99.999% of, you know, <laughs> art has never been paid for, you know, this kind of thing, and, and yeah, I'd, I'd argue, for, you know, for 90 plus, you know, maybe 90 plus more, percent of human history, art wasn't even physical, right? It had to be storytelling. I mean, there was storytelling was only oral. We never put stuff down in books. Now we put it down in CDs. Now we put it down in games. And we put it down in culture. So, you know, and we, we could never pay for, you know, music performance until, you know, we had records or, or we had, you know, venues to take in money. So, so that, now that we can do, well, we, we could, you know, we paid for music performance by paying people with food or drink or lodging putting or appreciation hat. or putting out a hat, exactly, yeah. right? But now that we have the ability to create um, payments or even micropayments and we have the ability to um, appreciate the artists in a, in a micro way, there are all sorts of people that are putting out tracks now where you have services where they can get even more more cents on a dollar than their iTunes, and they can actually make the money mm -hmm. um, for putting out their product. Um, why, uh, maybe to beat back a dead horse, why can't the audience members who are creating either great source, uh, to, to quote Elizabeth, um, you know, derived from the original works or great sources of their own, but, but basically things that are supporting sites, you know, um, Bloggers that blog in support of, of a particular site that are basically contributing to it, and, and of course, right now, uh, an example, lose, you know, lose an example from my mind. Why can't they be paid? Why they shouldn't are paid. they be paid? So, okay, I, I, there's two pieces to answer that, I think. So, the, to, to start with kind of the historical and the, and the so on, fundamentally, the classic pattern until about the birth of radio, sheet music, um, you know, widespread printing and, uh, you know, a few other things. Um, fundamentally, it was about a creator who had a fairly personal relationship with their audience, right? And really, it's kind of these mass media broadcasting mechanisms that altered that. Before that, you know, the jongleur had to go and do his, his troubadour pass through Provence or whatever, and he had to get to know the folks in the towns, and he had to put out the hat. And maybe he got lucky and he found the, you know, the the medieval equivalent of, of, you know, Turner or MTV or somebody, which would have been, you know, the Duke of Salzburg or whoever who's going <laughs> to pay for everything. But, but really, you know, most people, most creators, it was a, a much more personal kind of relationship, right? And I think that um, 
in a lot of ways, what we're seeing with the internet is a return to that, um, because that's that is certainly what Radiohead can exploit in a way that a more processed uh, pablum kind of band can't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Isn't, isn't but, but, but they, well, sure, they no, 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 no. But it's about it's it's not the scale; it's the connection, mm-hmm. right? That's fundamentally what right. The mass broadcast is really good at monetizing scale. Individual creators are, frankly, they're better suited to monetize passion. And New yes, Kids in the Block it, probably right? had better. New Kids in the Block probably had more commercial success than Radiohead did. But yeah. I don't think they make a lot of money when they try yeah. to release their album direct for free. But people none of these folks oh, make money on music might. anymore not either. Anymore. I mean, Radiohead's now an exception to that. They made money That's on music. They manage the illusion. The problem well, is, is there's a commodification of a lot of content out there. It's devalued, and so most bands going on the road, they're making their money on T-shirts <laughs> and swag. Yes. And that's yes. what's happened. Yes. That, that's a dirty but little secret. It's passion. That's the dirty little secret of exactly. entertainment, which is it's like the money is made on the peripherals, not on the yes, not on the exactly. Creative. It's it's monetizing the passion and the relationship with the individual. I hate to use the word consumer because it it's really the fan, right? Mm-hmm. That's what we're talking about there. And uh, the second half of that, I guess, which touches on what you're talking about, so the um, why can't the blogger and so on and so forth, right? So if it is the media company paying the blogger, we have a term for that blogger, sock puppet, yeah. right? <laughs> if it isn't the media company paying the blogger, right? If they are, and this happens all the time in the games industry, right? You get <laughs> the company, yeah. the big bad publisher, whatever, they make a game, it does create that emotional connection, whereupon fans start running fan sites, and then they hit scale, mm-hmm. whereupon they start taking ads, and often those ads are from third parties altogether. They might be from the media company, the publisher, whoever, but they might not. And then they start developing a brand, right, that's associated with their fan site, whereupon they branch out into other games, right? So um, in the games industry, this is how things like Warcry, IGN, uh, you know, some fairly big, like, substantial market cap companies now started, uh, started, right? And they just grew. Their monetization didn't come initially from being the sock puppet, right? Although often, I have to tell you, often they were given a little bit of a boost by smart publishers who said, it is valuable to us to have this ecology, right? So it does happen, and it can be monetized. All right, here's a question over here. Hi, my name's Gail Gerecho. I think Catherine, I think we've communicated before on, on maybe on Henry's blog. Um, I'm, a, uh, I'm an academic scholar. I'm a media studies professor, cultural studies professor. I also spent eight years running startup companies in uh, San Francisco, New York, and LA. And um, I'm, I want to bring gender into the discussion, gender in class. <laughs> Catherine, I totally understand and agree with your saying that if there were going to be any movement towards monetization, it would have to be from the bottom up. It doesn't work from the top down, and, and you're saying the same thing. And I just want to say that in male-dominated remix genres, that has happened already. As you said, sampling, which is the foundation, the musical foundation of hip-hop music, was all fan work, uh, people loving music so much that they dare to risk 
copyright lawsuits just to get their stuff out there, and they monetized from the get, you know, and uh, created a whole new form of music that brings a minority discourse to the forefront of American culture and gives the youth culture of America some really interesting things to identify with. Fan fiction is just as large an industry, a non-paid industry, as sampling and fan fiction, I argue, has been the foundation for all of this um, peripheral media that is growing out of television, out of movies. It is developing and deepening the characters and the universes that already exist that is what media corporations are doing. That is fan fiction. That's not what fan films do, which is parody. That's not, you know, that it's not quite the same thing that game modders do, which is using the same code to make whole new universes. It's fan fiction that the media corporations are doing. And I just want to take issue a little bit with uh, the idea, I agree with you that the women the girls, and they, a lot of them are young girls that write fan fiction they don't want to monetize, and that is an ideological stance that women creators have taken for a long time in craft cultures. That is something women like having safe spaces of creation. They, do, they didn't want to sell their knitting work. They didn't want to sell their quilt making. That was something personal, female, uh, an aesthetic counter to the masculinist uh, aesthetics around them. They, wanted, they want to preserve their safe spaces, but women have paid the price. Yeah. Women have not done for fan fiction what African-American men have done with sampling and hip-hop. And I think, you know, just intuitively, that's a huge monetary difference. Yeah. And what is the cost to women not getting paid for their work? On the one hand, they are being co-opted by media industries. They're inventing protocols that are winning and it's not the women who invented those protocols that have made a dime off of that. But on the other hand, women have economic needs. They don't exist as gentlewomen scholars that have the luxury to be educated amateurs that do, you know, they engage with text for the love of text. Women, um, I'm, a, I'm an active participant in these communities, women stop writing, women stop in the middle of a story, in the middle of a sentence, because they have economic needs, jobs to go to, families to tend to. Women have time demands. Uh, and money is one thing that has been shown to open up a space for women to prioritize their cultural production over the other time demands, like family, like childcare. Um, and money is, is useful for that. So I just want to bring in the fact that there is a gendered uh, aspect to who gets paid for remix and who doesn't. Yeah. And women haven't mobilized yet, but unless they mobilize soon, the fan libs of the world <laughs> will start to monetize their work mm -hmm. and not compensate them. Mm. And yeah. equal pay for equal work is an important part of, of you know, women's culture in the early 21st century, right? So. Yeah, uh, and there have people have written about this that this is there was a recent I just recently read a great discussion that it, it brought up exactly that point. It was on Live Journal. I don't want to name any names because I haven't asked if I could quote them or anything. But uh, there was a great discussion on exactly this point that it is such a long history. Women have a very long history of not demanding payment for things, and uh, you know patriarchal culture has a long history of devaluing women's work specific and not wanting to pay them either because it, it comes from women. Therefore, it's not nearly as intrinsically valuable, and also, uh, you know, it's not really art at all. You know, they get the divide between this is real art and this is folk art. Um, and I think, you know, fan fiction is in such a strange position with regard to that. Um, on the one hand, you know, the, I'm very much a big fan of the idea of this is a safe space because we are outside of this commercial 
space, we can write what we want. And it's a, I, you know, and part of this might be me coming to this as a fan, as an as both an academic and a fan, rather than a business person who's like, oh hey, oh hey, well, let's make some money off of this, or as somebody who as somebody who has another job to support my financial needs, you know, I can look at this purely as both enjoyment and it's the freedom to write that material. It's the freedom of that that I think is the most valuable. But again, you know, it does, it, these are complicated questions. How does this tie into women's tradition, the traditional devaluing of women's work? Is there a way? I don't know if those two can be reconciled. Um, and the, I do have a general sense, though, too, that I'm really, I, I like the idea, while I, can, while I feel like uh, critiquing fandom for precisely that, for you know, how does it play into these uh, devaluing of women's work, I think it's also, I kind of like to take fandom kind of as it is. You know, it is what it is. It is this amateur production, and because of its amateur production, I, I still, I get in a very celebratory mode. Yay, we can do whatever we want. Because nobody, because we don't have to be concerned with, you know, are we going to sell this? Are we involved with the media company? If you can afford a computer and you have time to do if it, you can and you have an education to put yeah. into it. I mean, there are lots of assumptions in that. Yeah, there and are. I, and, but and, and, and I just, I just really love the point, and I want to yeah. thank you for it. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's worth giving you a shout out on it. I think yeah. it's, it's just, uh, you know. And the other thing I want to say is, is just as another point is, is. You know, we do do and have this conversation in a place where we have great freedoms. Yeah. So um, it's a, you know it's one. So I think the beauty of this, the internet in general, is access to free space. But even coming from the cultural context of, the, of Boston, Massachusetts, it's kind of yeah. also a statement. Well, I, you know, I do want to say it's not quite entirely as bleak. There are, you know, arguably the entire romance, particularly Regency romance, is remix mashup of Georgette Heyer with some Jane Austen, and it is a place where women have built an amazing community of, of extremely supportive mutual assistance that is also extremely commercially vibrant. Yeah. So it isn't, you know, it's not completely bleak. There are places where, and, and it may be precisely because no guys would be caught dead with a romance novel, that it works. That might be why, because when you, uh, it, it's still a safe space. Children's publishing in the 90s Children's publishing. was initially good, very much yeah. the same way, that it was a haven uh, for leftists and women, essentially, like in the 1950s and 60s, because it's, oh, they're kids' books. Who cares about kids' books? And so people could get away with a lot of stuff that they couldn't otherwise. But I do think it's really interesting. You, know, you mentioned, and thank you for mentioning that, you know, that there's a lot of economic uh, background to that, that you, know, you have to be able to afford the computer and the internet connection. But what I think is so interesting that the big blow-up happened over fanlib, because in fan fiction, in some ways, is pretty much something, everybody can write something. Okay, writing, you know, if you want a vid, you need a certain amount of technical expertise. You, want to, you need to know how to if do it. You know it. how to write. Yeah, well, I mean, but if you go through school, you know, you're taught to write to a certain extent. You know, you can you're put, privileged enough yeah, to get to you're school. Enough. If you want to keep yeah. going down the line. Yeah, I, mean, I know. If you're privileged enough, if you're privileged <laughs> enough to get through school, um, you know, but most people, in order to function as, you know, in day-to-day -day society, have to know how to put words together in a particular order. You know, have to at least have some basic literacy skills if they want to uh, participate. And so writing is kind of seen as something that's something just about everyone could do. And that doesn't mean everybody can do it well. As opposed to something like vidding, as opposed to, you know, creating fan films, as opposed to that. And I find it so interesting that that's where these discussions are taking place. Um, that it, it's so focused around these particular issues. Even creating music, you need an instrument. You need something. Access to recording equipment. But writing? 
You can screw, you know, can you afford a few pieces of paper and a, go to a public computer? Anybody can do that. And that's why. Uh, because you have to write fan fiction. If you, if you made even $10 doing it, that's an easier justification, which is what romance novel writing did do. Yeah. Just by making a small amount, women free their time. I think there's also something to say on this whole economic thing, what's enough? Um, I think that in a profit margin, the only question is that we, we always want to see these things in like black and white and all kinds of What's enough? Mm -hmm. I think people right now with AdSense are like you know, the economic engine of the content creation. If you're just, if you care enough to reach some people who care about the same things, you actually can make a couple of bucks. <laughs> and a couple of bucks at the end of the month for a ten, you know fourteen year old girl doing something might mean you know a couple of movie tickets or you know the price of the next Harry Potter book. It doesn't have to mean that you make as much as the professional journalist or you're guaranteed a seat at the New York Times. And it's all those gray areas that I'm just as I said when I started out. What concerns me is that we, we value and begin to think about all the value that this these changes can create in our culture and 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 in how we create and consume media. And there's such so much more going on than the black and white. And I just that's what excites me. Right. Have, you got a, have you got someone back there, Jiaoqing? <coughs> okay. Shut up. So we'll, we'll, we'll work our... Sorry about the short answers there, Henny. Yes. No, no, no. Can we are you? Are we doing okay? No. <laughs> We're talking too much. I'm just trying to balance a great conversation up here with people here who want to question. So we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll do our best. Shout out to the audience for being here at 545. Yeah, really. Way to go. Keep going. Right. Ten so words apiece, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Ten Actually, words. Actually, as a follow-up to uh, the last conversation, I think... Yeah, sure. Uh, as a follow-up to the last conversation, a lot of the uh, conversation that we've been having today, I think, focuses on uh, fan fiction, <clears throat> which tends to be a fairly esoteric and, and sometimes difficult to monetize uh, form of content. Um, with the boon in, recent boon in uh, rich internet applications and resurgence of user-generated content, uh, we're getting to a point now where a lot of applications can exist online that allow and enable fans and users and content creators of all likes to create new content uh, on the websites themselves and then post that content to the sites. We're seeing it on MTV. We're seeing it on YouTube with Remixer. Uh, we're starting to see it with online music sequencers. How does that change the conversation? Um, if a user creates content on a corporate site, posts it to that site, and the site then owns that content exclusively, um, what happens when uh, someone creates their own <laughs> video on YouTube YouTube owns that video and then uh, repurposes that and sells it at Target for $19.99 as America's Funniest Home Videos. What happens when these organizations and these websites, which generally were just uh, forums for people's content, become <coughs> tools as well for creating it and assets for creating it, and um, they tend they now repurpose that content and uh, and gain financial uh, credit from it. The, the only thing I'll comment on quickly is, is I don't know what happens. I'm not going to go, but my ten words are is the only thing that the, the media company has always done that has a lot of value for any of these things, it has distribution. And the power of distribution, you have to look at all of this conversation. There's create, you know, distribute, consume. And without, you know, without distribution, a lot of these things don't have the impact that, that is assumed in your statement. And it's the surfacing of those things the channels that do that do create some value, and I'm not. So what happens is, is nobody hears about them. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> that's what happens. Some yes, there's always that breakout moment, but we hear about less of them without some of these monoliths. Yeah, and there's there's interesting weird legal things. A lot of 
a lot of sites don't pursue the precise model you described because they don't actually know where the allegedly original content came from. Right. It's very hard. So they would expose themselves to legal risk if they just, if, if, you, if you read the licenses carefully, the, the blanket I claim ownership of what you upload license is, is going the way of the dodo because yeah. you can, it's, it's hard to find something these days. Somebody uploaded it and oops, actually it belonged to Comedy Central but they claimed it was original or whatever and you keep going down the chain. Um, so the media companies aren't stupid, they find other ways to monetize it and in part because it's safer for them. So the, the, the what happens is accommodations start getting found in, in different ways. Some users are willing to put it up there and they don't care about the ownership. They just say, sure, go ahead, have it. Others are willing to sign away different kinds of rights, you know. Um, but actually, we're used to that in general. I mean, you sign away all kinds of publicity rights. Actually, we did when we sat down at this table. Yeah. <laughs> you say you're going to contribute content to pretty much anything, right? I mean, you, you turn in a lottery ticket. You just signed away publicity rights. So it, you know, the answer is well, you reach accommodations. And they're usually not simple. They're not blanket, I own you kinds of accommodations. All right, there are a whole row of hands down here. We're going to try to be very brief at this point. All right, back there, and then we'll come. I had a question for Martin. At the, in your opening statements, you were talking about a phenomenon I've observed as well, and know personally of someone who had editors and reporters being fired and in the name of citizen journalism. And that kind of dovetails nicely, obviously, with the economics, and I think with some deeply rooted stuff in American culture about uh, professionalization and, and academics and so on. Is that going on in Europe and other parts of the world as well? About professionals being let go in the in context the of, of a yeah. shift towards uh, user-generated content. Um, not as far as I can tell. I, 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 I can give you like five concrete examples in the US, and I can't do the same with in, in Europe uh, or in Australia. Well, there you go. Uh, uh, what what you do see happening is, um, uh, I'll give you this example. Um, 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 the number of freelance journalists uh, is going down. Now, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever because the entire labor economy is shifting towards contingent, temporary, project-based, yada, yada, yada labor. So how is that possible? Um, well, the reason why that's possible is that young journalists, newcomers in the field of journalism, <laughs> Uh, they get jobs, almost all of them do. That's why journalism schools say, yeah, we've got more and more graduates, but they all find jobs within two years. Yes, but they pay less than 50% of their monthly income. That's why, statistically, they don't register as journalists. So what do they do? They add income through copywriting for PR agencies to uh, make the same story four times for different uh, content uh, platforms within the same company, for example. A piece of the story goes into a magazine, another piece goes up to the website, and so on and so forth. And, and now, there's nothing wrong with that, you would argue, but it's, uh, um, uh, it that is becoming the dominant model for anybody under the age of 35 in the field of journalism. And uh, I think you see that in a lot of other types of jobs as well. Um, um, and that I, I cannot see 
I want to correlate that, although not causally, with the shift towards you know, using consumers as collaborators in producing content. I mean, it enables, um, uh, because it all falls onto the category of flexibility to make your production process more flexible, adaptable, shift with the times, what's happening right now, what do you get in right now, whether that comes from a citizen journalist, from a reporter, or from somebody who once in a while delivers something and therefore competes for the chance to create content with, and then anybody, basically. And, uh, um, um, and, and again, I'm not saying that's bad or that's good, but it's a very interesting development that, that at least explains some of the skepticism that you, can, that you find within media companies towards collaborating or cooperating with user communities. Because it tends to go hand in hand with having to do more stuff with less people. I mean, uh, yeah, okay. So, 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 so that, it, it's happening in lots of subtle ways. And uh, I, I think, so from, from, a, from a perspective that I'm looking at this, this kind of stuff, which is not from the perspective of fans, uh, but the perspective of people who are trying to earn a living by doing what they passionately want to do, yeah, also fans though, but in a different context, is, is that you have to find a way to explain to professionals that they're now competing for a chance to create content with their consumers, which is a really interesting different take on what working in the media actually means. And um, uh, I know for a fact, because I'm a professor, that we are not teaching students that that's what it means. And, uh, and, and because probably when we would do, we would find all kinds of really cool, the stuff that we're talking about today <coughs> should translate into teaching people, right? Because you can cooperate with fans and be a fan and actually earn a living one way or another. And, and, and there's all kinds of creative potential there, but it's, it's, it's definitely not an either or. And, and I don't know, I'm rambling a little bit, but... but Okay, yeah. so there are some question, there are questions down here at the front. I'm going to take these two, and then we're going to close out since it's been a long day. So this is mostly related to one of the questions that's still up on the board. In the two panels we uh, were in this morning, there was a focus on understanding who the audience is and how brands and advertisers could relate to that. And I just wondered if there's any perspective that you can give us as to how getting an understanding of the fan audience in all of its, its forms is something that can benefit advertisers? Or is it a community that really is just not receptive to advertising at all? I'll answer the question briefly. I think that the community is enormously receptive to advertising, but only in a permissive way. Show me something I'm interested in, thank you. Show me something I'm not interested in, go the hell away. So to the degree to which you can not only understand that person, but understand how to provide that person with something that they would have chosen the, themselves to look at if they knew it was there, you're actually going to be getting uh, a lot of pull and uh, significantly more effective uh, advertising impression, to use the term. Advertising is content. You know, you, uh, yep. you, you, For years you buy a newspaper. Some, you, you do read the ads, too. So I think that that's just, that's, that's just part of the... Eternal reality. If it's yeah, I think they're, they should be usertizing. Users will be advertising each other. I think we'll all be disintermediated one day. And yeah. <laughs> I think that that's that's the moral lesson that I didn't I haven't heard before, and that's that the the movement to the concept of recognizing advertising is content, and that you should only be advertising things to people that they actually want and need, or that you really think they ought to want and need, and not simply because you want them to buy it, or you think you can cause them to buy it by virtue of doing it. I understand that's actually an ethical distinction, but oddly enough, I think we ought to be making those kinds of distinctions. The mission of every media company that I've ever heard of or worked for is to, 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 to uh, inform and entertain, surprise and delight an audience. And an advertisement can do that too. That's fair game for a user, 
a media company or an advertiser. That's the common denominator here sometimes. So Good. just hire a fan at your ad agency, even yeah. if it's just as a consultant, because otherwise you're liable to miss the mark. It worked out really well for Supernatural. They had a contest for a promo, to create a promo for the show and pick the yeah, fan. It's worked out well for everybody who's actually done it right. right? You just have to, you've got to connect. Okay. So we spent... So we spent a lot of time talking about this on the We spent a lot of time talking about the status culture of um, you know fandom, uh, which dis disdains in some respects financial remuneration. Uh, but how do you reconcile that with the fact that the object of the fanatic uh, fanaticism was actually brought to the fans based on the commercial viability and economic viability of that by the media company? So it seems like there's this big contradiction there, and I, I wonder what you all think of that. That's what I was saying when I talked about source. You know, it, what we're talking about is commentary. It comes from source. Somebody creates something. So that's fundamental to me. I, I think it's a false dichotomy that you're describing because it makes the assumption that fandom only creates around mass media properties, which is which it doesn't. Right? It, it, yeah. I, I, it, you can have that happen at any scale, like the skating example. Mm -hmm. Right? So I. I even go more strongly. If the purpose of the creation of the piece of expression that the people that are around was purely economic in nature, then there's not going to be a lot of fans. I, mean, I don't know a whole lot of people who are diehard fans of Chronicles of Riddick or The Wild Wild West starring Will Smith. Conversely, if the purpose of the creation of the expression was to convey something that was passionately created by the person who created it and was absorbed by the people who, who absorbed it for the same reason, then the fact that there was an economic transaction involved in conveying it, you know, great, thank you. And you should be paid for it, but it should be the second order issue. Again, you got to connect. Okay, M Michael had a question up there. One, one last question, because I saw Michael before, and I didn't, didn't remember when I was counting down. Um, I'm uh, head of a small company, and we've been working, developing. I guess what originally was prosumer content, now it's becoming more professional content um, for uh, the travel industry. And what we're working on is a software tool that would allow anybody to create similar content. And we're working and kind of coming around similar models of what, what we could do, how this tool could be presented. And one of the models thrown at us was, well, we should get a lot of marquee names up creating initially some of the content that, you know, names that people would uh, recognize, it would look very professional, and that would inspire audiences to create their own versions of it. And I just wanted to get your reactions to those concepts of seeding a site with professional productions to inspire fan-based productions, especially around a, a sort of nifty tool to do that. And I, I know a lot about that. I can talk to you if you want me to. Yeah, please. I mean, there's, there's the good case studies that show there's two dimensions that you can go after. One is the sheer fact that um, branded content, which is sort of a subset of what you're talking about, can draw in eyeballs. And then you can then use those eyeballs to then play against whatever content's being generated by your service. And, and that happens across the board. Uh, the guys who uh, did uh, Pure Ownage, who is a, you know, a pretty good example of fan-based content, um, had a huge spike when they were able to bring in some branded content into their show. Um, and then that spike stayed because they provided good content, right? That's one. The second variable is the degree to which the, the, the brands that you're bringing in are exemplars that they provide a very clean way of exemplifying the ideal use of what you're doing. Now, obviously, in that case, you have to be enormously careful to make sure that the content that you're seeding your service with is, in fact, exemplified 
uh, and people can see it. So that way it's more pedagogical than it is anything else. If you combine the two, you know, so much the better. So the, the short answer is it can absolutely work, but it obviously has to be done with some, some branding care. You always want you know, authorities to emerge. And so, I mean, I, I, that's one model of powering uh, user-generated content is you know, building authorities and, and bringing in basically celebrities who can set the pace and the tone. And even, that, even if you, sometimes moderators even serve that role with subject matter experts. I think it works. I think it depends too on what specifically you're talking about. It works a lot better with the business tools and things that you yeah. that you two were talking about. I'm, because I was just thinking about. Uh, I keep going back to fan fiction. Sorry, That's it's my area. <laughs> uh, but you know, there's tie-in novels to uh, one uh, supernatural, and there was just a general kind of meh. I've read better fanfic. Mm -hmm. you know, so seeding it professionally, it doesn't necessarily work with every single thing. But aren't there celebrities so. in fan fiction, people who become authorities that people really want to read? Isn't there, there just are. sort of, I mean, there are people who are, I but mean, is it totally egalitarian? Now, if I, I know nothing from fan fiction. If I go out there, it's just like anything, or is there some people i got to read? Yeah, well, it depends on the fandom and depends on who's going to recommend it. But that's all, again, that's all kind of organic. It springs up. It's not seeding from a company. It's well, not, but, there's, but to get back to but Martin's point. They're leaders. They're, yeah, then they're well. establishing a, 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 you know, a tradition or culture or, or standards. So in terms of the, uh, I, I don't know what exactly is tools intended to make, but let's say it was a young adult fantasy, <coughs> right? Okay. Okay, in that case... J.K. Rowling is the one who seeded that community, yeah. right? Okay. The book was the seed. Mm -hmm. And it could have been Scott Westerberg. It could have been, you know, uh, it could have been Susan Cooper. It could have been Narnia. It could have been whatever, right? That was the professional caliber seed. Uh, because, it, you know, his tool, it didn't sound like it was, let's make, mm -hmm. uh, you know, let's make something that's a clone of this particular instance of a genre or whatever it is. More likely he's talking about, hey, let's populate the genre as a whole. So I think it is that the fan fiction is coming from that seat. Yeah, but it's also a big motivating factor for a lot of fan activities. I'm not getting what I want from this text, so I'm going to create something that does give me what I want. So it's a critique of the text, and it's not just, I, I don't sure, know. Sure, but the critique builds on what's there yeah. to start with something okay. clicked, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, we have worked the audience very hard today. Uh, no more. It's been a very long, long day, an exciting day. We'll have another long and exciting day tomorrow. Food awaits us in the outer lobby. Join me in thanking the panelists. In, in the lobby and, and Jason and Nancy, your question, we offer beer and, and wine as payment um, for all of the content that you produce today. So thank you everyone. Great <laughs>